Welcome to the Pantheon of the Blood God, a monthly podcast dedicated to exploring the very best RPGs of all time. I'm your host, time-traveling sorceress, Kat Bailey, and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. If you are the time-traveling sorceress, I am the soldier who goes off cliffs. You can be my knight, Nadia. Okay, that sounds all right. <laughs> and who's my special guest? Hi, I'm Alex Donaldson. Uh, I am all over the internet, most often, very often, talking about Final Fantasy. Um, I'm the co-founder and co-owner of RPG Site, which is probably the most relevant thing here. So I, I think about role-playing games a lot, um, and I've actually very recently pl- replayed our topic today. We also think about RPGs a lot on this podcast, and this month we'll be diving into Final Fantasy VIII the RPG that gave us time compression. As always, we'll be exploring its history, its greatest moments, and its soundtrack, after which we'll decide whether it deserves to be enshrined in the RPG pantheon. We'll get to the episode in a minute, but first, some housekeeping. Thank you so much for supporting Acts of the Blood God at the $10 level we really appreciate it acts of the blood god is on twitter and instagram and you can follow me on twitter at the underscore catbot nadia is at nadia oxford and we stream periodically at twitch.tv slash cat bailey tv where we do community gatherings we recently did a really cool nintendo direct uh simulcast uh, in commentary nadia that was a lot of fun we did. Uh, I apologize. My volume was up a little high. <laughs> next time I'll make sure to regulate it. I'm figuring it, it out, but I, I think I kind of got it, right? So next time I think I'll be able to level out the volume. But it was like my first time. It was my first day. It was my first day and penguins clap and laugh <laughs> and swim away. And Alex, I'm sure you have a lot to promote. So here is your space to do with that. You know, visit RPG site, rpgsite.net. It is exactly what you think it is with that title. It's a website that covers role-playing games and there's some pretty exciting stuff on the horizon as i'm sure any listener to this podcast is very well aware uh, you can follow me on twitter at ap zone runner um, and there you can also find links to my other writing elsewhere but mainly yeah visit rpg site they do great work over there i write over there regularly uh, and it's a it'll be a very good compliment to this podcast i just want to say that RPG sites Final Fantasy VIII guides were so helpful for me during my replay. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing about those is um, RPG site is descended from a very, very old Final Fantasy fan site. So when they re-released FF8, we went back and rewrote and, you know, spruced up guide pages that were literally 20 years old or something like that. Um, what site was it? So the site that it's descended from, there was a website. We were GameSpy's official Final Fantasy IX site, which was called UFF9, oh. unofficial Final Fantasy IX site. And then it, Beautiful. And then at some point we uh, – there was also UFF10. And then at some point we broke away from GameSpy and became a general Final Fantasy site. Um, and then in 2006, Final Fantasy was in a terrible place, right? Well, not terrible, but we'd had an MMO and <laughs> FF12 just kept getting delayed. And that was when we were like, maybe we should do a general RPG website. And we just caught, you know, Knights of the Old Republic and Jade Empire and, you know, Morrowind. So we got really lucky on that front. And then Final Fantasy got good again. So <laughs> you're all prepared. Yeah, it was good. But yeah, it's, it's, so those guides have a history. <laughs> 
Nice. I like that. I like that piece. Yeah, it's of funny you mentioned that since we, as of the recording of this podcast, just did the console RPG quest for the PlayStation 3. So we were talking all about that wonderful era in RPG history. Yeah. Right. Which wasn't always very wonderful. <laughs> but we're going to talk about a much better era in RPG history. I would call it Square's Silver Age. If the Golden Age was the 16-bit era with Chrono Trigger and everything, then the PlayStation era was when Square was at the absolute peak of its powers, if not necessarily the creative peak. And no game better exemplifies that than Final Fantasy VIII, released on PlayStation on February 11th, 1999 in Japan and September 9th, 1999 in North America. It launched on the same day as a Sega Dreamcast in North America, making it the PlayStation's direct response to Sega's brand new console. That was how big Final Fantasy was at the time. It was effectively a first-party exclusive, the equivalent of, I don't know, uh, Square put or Sony putting out a third-party exclusive against something that Xbox was making. It was later released on PC on March 23rd, 2000. The original PC version was very buggy and had terrible music. It was like MIDI. FMVs weren't great either. <laughs> Alex, did you ever play that version? <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, I, I remember it really vividly. It's it's one of those really bizarre things where it, it, I discovered it when it was quite new in like a weird bargain store. You know, You know the stores that get stock from shops that are closing down? Um, it was mm-hmm. in like one of those places, and I remember the big box very, very vividly. And yeah, I mean, back then I was pretty clueless, but I just understood that having played the PlayStation original, I was like, something is not right about this. Um, <laughs> Everybody's faces look slightly different. When you hear the music side by side, it's, God, it's astonishing. But the PC version was the way that you could play uh, Chocobo World in the West without importing a, a pocket station. So. That was cool, at least. That's a trade-off of source, I suppose. Really terrible music that were... There were no mods back then. You couldn't fix it. So <laughs> enjoy your crappy music and your chocobo, I now, guess. correct me if I'm wrong. That's the one that's on Steam, right? So <laughs> the funny thing is I'm sort of the originator of a lot of this because um, <laughs> my, my tweets are always referenced about this. But basically, my understanding from speaking to people who would know um, was that Basically, Square doesn't have the source code of games like Final Fantasy VII, Final Fantasy VIII. Um, and we, we know some of this. Like when they did Kingdom Hearts, when they did Final Fantasy X, they spoke quite openly for those HD remasters about how they'd lost most of the original stuff and had to recreate it by hand. And so this leads to a situation where Square wanted to get these classic games on PC and on mobile and on you know uh, current consoles. And they didn't have it. They they just didn't have the source code. So all they could do was reverse engineer the PC version. So the versions that are available of FF7 and FF8 on uh, PC and on PlayStation and on Xbox and on Switch, they are basically the original PC versions um, that they sort of hacked to work. The crazy thing actually is they sort of patched some of this, but when Final Fantasy VIII's PC version was originally re-released on Steam, if you dug into the code a little bit, it was quite obvious they'd actually used some fan patches as a base. Be <laughs> um, <laughs> brilliant. But they pretty quickly sort of patched that out. Um, but the launcher at one point of the Steam version still had the name of like 
<laughs> from um i forget the name of the website it's like like giving like shout out to all his homies the way they yeah basically because because this person had designed the launcher because this was how it was with these games these were even early on such abandoned where i can't remember if it was seven or eight mm. that had a deadly bug um that just would completely crash the game and IDOS's solution on the official IDOS website, because IDOS published the PC versions, was literally just to steal the fanfics and upload it to their own support page. <laughs> it was a different time. <laughs> but yeah, the modern versions really are based was. on the PC versions, which is kind of nuts. And it's also why, in some ways, they're still worse than the original. Oh, that's an interesting way of putting it. There's there's interesting things about... like. Um, the frames per second at which the menus run, for instance, where on PlayStation the menus could run at a higher frame rate, um, but it was a PC problem because the way that like Final Fantasy VII at least worked is the menu and the actual battle screen were rendered separately and then put together, and that was something that PC hardware back then couldn't do nearly as easily as the PlayStation, and so there were all sorts of concessions with this PC version. Uh, with both of them and that's why there's some there's, there's some a couple of weird little things about the modern versions which don't resemble the playstation version and that's because it's based off like i say the the, the pc code what's really confusing is that the pc version there are two pc versions on steam there's kind of an original version and then there's also the remastered version but the remastered version has bad reviews <laughs> yeah I, I i don't and you know what i don't even quite understand that it's so bizarre that they, they've... I guess they did do a lot more work to the remastered one, but I don't understand, other than money, why they didn't just sort of revoke people's licenses to the original one and just replace it. That would have been the smart thing, right? But Because mm-hmm. um, the, the remastered one, I does that have Chocobo World? I don't, I don't think, think it, it does, does right? No. So it's like, yeah, the only way to play Chocobo World, for instance, is to... Is to, is to get that original one, and then you get a little separate Windows executable, which is a Pocket Station emulator. <laughs> How crazy is there that? There's also fan patches for the original as well that helped various things like the music and the graphics anyway, so that it was able to uh, push forward a little bit versus the remastered version. Yeah, I want to shout out actually to um, it's it's I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm just going to spell it out. It's qhiwm.com. And that was the go-to website back in the day for patches and for, you know, mods to the PC versions of Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VIII and save editors and all sorts of stuff. They even built, like, their own standalone version of Triple Triad that you could just play on Windows. Um, oh, and nice. that website, I think I remember yeah, that. Yeah, that website is still there. The forums are still really active because these guys are now focused on modding the Steam version. Um, and, yeah, that website was a godsend. Still is. Well, at last... For a long time, Final Fantasy VIII did, was kind of stuck because there was a PSN version, and it was, but it was kind of hard to access outside of PC or like the PS3, that kind of thing. Finally, a remastered version with some quality of life improvements, improved character models and whatnot was released for PS4, Xbox One, PC, and Switch on September 3rd, 2019. It was because fans asked for it a lot. I played it just recently on Switch, and while some people said that there were frame rate issues or bugs, I did not have any issues. And in many ways, I found the character models rather nice, and I found the times three character speed a freaking godsend. I have no idea how I was able to deal with normal speed back in the day with the drawing and the DFs and all that. I would have gone crazy. 
that was me in Final Fantasy IX. I think the mm-hmm. character models look great, frankly. And I mean, there's memes around the internet where in the original version, Riona goes up to Squall and says, you're the best looking guy here. And his face <laughs> looks like he's been stepped on. It's made out of like three pixels. Whereas in the new version, he actually looks like a human being. So that alone is an improvement. All right, let's talk about our personal histories with Final Fantasy VIII. Nadia, you're the hater. I'll start with you. I'm not a hater. I'm just, okay. (laughs) Well, I was at first. Like, I bought Final Fantasy VIII because, uh, of course, I was really big into VI and VII. And I don't know if I bought it on release day, but I bought it quite close to it. I went to a a Canadian chain called CompuCenter, RIP, it's long dead. I bought the game. It cost me a lot because games cost a lot up here. Took it home, kind of got mad at it. I tried to, because I didn't like the game, as we will get into, and I tried to return it, and they said, uh, yeah, we'll give you like $5 for that. And I just, I got so mad, I decided to keep the game out of spite. But then I went ahead and bought Suikoden 2 to to calm myself down, and I think that was a, I think it was worth suffering just to get Suikoden 2. What about you, Alex? Um, It's actually, uh, obviously, remember that in Europe we didn't get most of the of the Final Fantasy games until much later so uh, Final Fantasy 8 was my was my first one um, and specifically a friend of mine rented it from Blockbuster and bought it over you know we were we were really little kids then and bought Aww. it over for a sleepover Aww. and there were three of us there um, still I'm still friends with these guys like I was best man at one of their weddings uh, like literally last year, well, the year before last, and yeah, so we played it pretty much all night. Um, and I, it, it took well, you know, by the standards of a of a ten, eleven year old, right? So it was probably only till like half twelve, but it felt like all night. And we got probably to Delling City or thereabouts, um, and then he went home and he took the game with him, and. I said to mom, we've got to go to the store. And we went to, um, I think it was probably a Comet, which is also a long dead retailer here in the UK. And we went there and I bought Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VIII. Nice. And got back and I played VIII first. Um, We sort of played them concurrently. I probably played to the end of disc one of VIII and then I started VII and then I was playing them both at the same time, which is sort of crazy. And yeah, from there, that was... Yeah, and and from there that 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 was it for me. I was a I was a fan of this series. That that at that point, you know, the spiral begins of of downloading emulators and and, and playing six because there wasn't a release here and stuff. Oh, like that. interesting. Okay, so as somebody like who was in the UK, what was the first Final Fantasy that came out over there? So it was seven. Oh, yeah, okay. It was seven. Wow. Uh, well, actually, well, it depends on how specific you want to get. Mystic Quest came out here. Nice. And <laughs> so, very and, specific. And I, and I, and I think some of the FF Legend so Saga ga- games, the, the the Game Boy ones, came out here. At least one of those definitely came out in Europe. Uh, but the first one that really mattered, yeah, was, was Seven. That's really interesting. Well, I think I've told my story about how I started with Final Fantasy VI and then I borrowed PlayStation from my friend and got Final Fantasy VII. 
after I finished Final Fantasy VII and absolutely adored it, this was around the time that Final Fantasy VIII came out. And a lot of people warned me off Final Fantasy VIII. They said they did not like it. It was weird. It was slow. I remember watching my friend playing it at their house and being like, I don't really get this game. But I had <laughs> a PlayStation, I had disposable income, and I was predisposed to just picking up all of the Final Fantasies, and I really liked Final Fantasy VII. Oh my god, did I love that game. So I bought Final Fantasy VIII probably in 2000 and 2001, thereabouts, and to my surprise, I ended up really enjoying it. I beat it multiple times, I found all of its secrets, and I will say, and this is a common statement from a lot of people, but... It was the first RPG that I truly broke. It made me kind of love <laughs> RPGs in a lot of ways. I was like, "This, that's it. That's it. It's not just a story. It's taking all these crazy systems and figuring them out and being able to manipulate them. I am the master of the universe in this game. This is great. And then I'm God. a few years later, I played Final Fantasy X, and that inspired me to go back to my Final Fantasy games on PlayStation. I tried to play through Final Fantasy VII, and I found that I had a hard time getting through it. And to this day, I still haven't been able to finish a complete replay of Final Fantasy VII. Like, I always kind of lose momentum about halfway through. Whereas with Final Fantasy VIII, it just captivated me. And I really dug in there, and I really got to know everything about it. And even now, like I come back today, like I re I did a replay of Final Fantasy Remastered for this uh, for this Pantheon Game Club that we have over on the Discord and was talking through it. And wow, it grabbed me all over again. It's such a memorable and interesting RPG. I think I understand my problem here. I do not like to break RPGs, even Final Fantasy VI, which is infamously breakable. I, I never break it beyond sometimes exploiting the infamous uh, X-Zone vanish glitch because who the hell wants to deal with with Doomgaze? Uh, but beyond that, I don't know. We'll get into it, I'm sure. But all those all those weird things you can do in Final Fantasy VIII are what make my stomach kind of jump around. The one's enjoyment of this game is dependent, in my opinion, on two things. The first being... Uh, how tolerant you are of a story that really just is all over the place. Um, and the second is how tolerant you are of a game that is from a gameplay and balance perspective, pretty broken. And I think you can either take from that. This is really fun to rip it to shreds, or you can take from that. This, this sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, like I'm one of the people where I, I have, severe issues with this game story and stuff but i adore the way you can just 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 pick it to pieces if you want but also it's structured in such a way where you really have to think about it in order to pick it to pieces um if you don't you and just play it normally um it's it's a completely different experience and actually really interestingly if you grind in this game um as many japanese rpgs taught people to do it really punishes you for it. <laughs> yeah, it feels like Final Fantasy VIII is actually a lot like Moon in that yeah. RPG developers at this time kind of had a been there, done that feeling to them. They've been making games like Dragon Quest since the mid-80s. So they've been at it for 
12, 13 years at that point. And they're like, what can we do with this genre? Like, what can we do that's original? More than just having improved graphics, but the same old gameplay. And so you had developers who had been at it for a decade or more, just really stretching out and going crazy. What's really weird and something that you don't really expect to see in RPG or development today is how uh, all the risks that Square took with a game like Final Fantasy VIII it's tentpole franchise. It's mm-hmm. just completely insane. You would never see a blockbuster developer taking all, throwing out everything that worked from Final Fantasy VII in some ways starting from scratch. It's it's interesting because I think it's a bit of that and a bit not. It's it, it's it's. I wrote an article quite recently on RPG site where I talked about um, how I felt like Final Fantasy VIII would have benefited from a remake a lot more than Final Fantasy VII. And the reason I say this is because in Final Fantasy VII, it's a weird, disparate game that does lots of different things. But they clearly figured out the stuff they could do that would work, and then they just built as much stuff as they could within those confines. Um, Eight is crazy. Like, it's so ambitious. There's so many different elements and parts to it that just... blow seven out of the water really um and it's a studio going we made final fantasy 7 we can do whatever we want oh yeah and that involves throwing stuff out that involves reusing stuff as well like i think stuff a lot of people don't realize about eight is how much of it is leftover stuff from seven to an extent um like characters like fujin and rajin were originally designed for seven by oh Nora, i didn't know that yeah they were the turks and then he sort of looks at it yeah (laughs) they were going to be part of the turks yeah that makes sense um and things like that but also you look at other elements of design you look at how like um squall's jacket squall's sort of um furry you know animal edge around the uh the the neckline of his jacket that was put in to challenge the cg artist that's what (laughs) the morris says in the in the ultimania for this game he says yeah I, i i put that on on squall in order to give the CG artists a challenge. And that speaks to the way I think this game was designed, where they were like, look at what we did with Seven. How can we just push that in as many different directions yeah, as possible? Yeah, visually, and it's a really it's a huge leap over Seven. Even in systems as well, though, and and, and, and world view and, desi- and world design and stuff like that, and lore, it, it, it feels like they're just throwing absolutely everything at the wall. And sometimes that is for better and sometimes that is for worse Mm, yeah (laughs) in the news everyone was apparently afraid that 9999 would be kind of a mini y2k because it was a date commonly used by lazy programmers for archive data to purge all that so everybody was breathing a sigh of relief when the apocalypse didn't come early on the day that the dreamcast was released (laughs) well it was kind of an apocalypse (laughs) for sega Hey, Sorry. 9999 was the high watermark of Sega, in my opinion. That It was the fastest selling uh, console of all time at that point. They tried. They really did try. <laughs> the most popular music at this time was Bayamos by Enrique Iglesias. This is in America, of course. And Genie in a Bottle by Christina Aguilera. And The Sixth Sense was dominating the box office. I saw that in theaters. Oh, my God. My dad was once watching that on tv and my mom who never watches movies just sat beside him and said oh this is and she spoils the whole thing right then and there <laughs> and it was totally rose by the situation and he was just why would you do that to me 
I was not spoiled on it, by the way. I just checked, and I had to, I, I had to check. The UK number one was Mambo number five, which oh, is great. Oh wow, god! Oh god! I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to find out. Yeah, that's great. I'm not sure what the Canadian number one was. Uh, yeah, we got Mambo number five and Live Live in the Vida Loca. Wow! Oh, what a great, what a, time what a for great music. time for music. Yeah, that, that, like, I'm not even being sarcastic. What a great time for music. <laughs> I actually, um, at this time, I was working, in, I was just finished working at a uh, Canada's Wonderland, which is an amusement park. I was a, a janitor. And there was a surprise show by Ricky Martin. He just freaking showed up. I don't know how it happened or why, but that was the worst day of <laughs> my life. I, I, my I, life. I, <laughs> when I go to hell, that's where I will be because I was not allowed to leave work until like three in the morning. And it, it was just nuts. I've never seen such such pandemonium in my life. Well, as we alluded to earlier, yes, 9999 was the release of the Sega Dreamcast, and we did a console RPG quest for the Sega Dreamcast. I have many fond memories for Sega's console. I think it's actually the only Sega console that I've ever owned. I never owned a Sega Genesis because I was a poor teenager and just never got around to picking up, and I had fonder memories for the Super Nintendo in general. So as a consequence, Soul Calibur, Sonic Adventure came out around this time. Resident Evil 3 came out on September 22nd in Japan. And Homeworld, I love Homeworld. It's a PC strategy RPG or PC strategy game in which you command a fleet that's kind of like Battlestar Galactica. It's trying to find its way home. And the fleet can basically degrade as you're going over the campaign. So it can be very difficult. Very neat. There's a whole... Yeah, and there's a remastered version available on Steam. I don't know if they managed to bring back some of the mechanics that got cut out, but yeah. Alex, did you ever own a Dreamcast? Yeah, I mean, you know, the UK uh, in the 90s was, was Sega-led. You know, the, the Mega Drive, as it is here, the Genesis, was uh, Mega Drive was more popular than the than the Super Nintendo. Um, the Master System was more popular than the NES, I believe. Um, so yeah, I had a Mega Drive. Um, I was never a Sony person. Is the funny thing I like if you if you count my main console trajectory, um, I had a Mega Drive, and then I had an N sixty four, then I had a Dreamcast, then I had a GameCube, then I had an Xbox. I did have Playstations in that time. You know that's how I was playing FF eight after all. But they were always the secondary machine. The Playstations really. For me, they were Final Fantasy machines and Time Crisis machines. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I had a Dreamcast. I I, I think Dream, Dreamcast might have been the first console I got on launch day. Wow. Okay. Um, I, th- I think I'd, I'd scrimped and saved and 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 begged and pleaded and rolled part of the Christmas present into it and was allowed to have some of my Christmas money early or something to put to get me over the line. And yeah, Sonic Adventure. It's it, to me, um, to me that game is as monumental as Mario sixty four. Even though it, in many ways it's sort of so. Um, <laughs> I mean, who do, who who can forget <laughs> the the killer whale destroying the stage? That was mind blowing at the time. Yeah, 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 exactly. And 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 you know, Shenmue as well. Like obviously that was about a year later, but um, I think that was the first time I realized that games could be truly truly cinematic without cg 
It was a hell of a time for video games. Vega's still around, Nintendo. We're coming, uh, we're just a year removed from the release of Ocarina of Time. There's still all kinds of weird things floating around, like the Wonder Swan and the SNK Pocket and all of that. And I don't know, it, it was a different era for video games as we were kind of cataloging in our console RPG quest. And you know what? I really miss it. <laughs> I'm good. No, I've, I've got a, I've got a lot of nostalgia. Screw that time. <laughs> it's all right. All right, let's talk about the background and development of Final Fantasy VIII. And really, you can't talk about Final Fantasy VIII without talking about Final Fantasy VII. Square's 32-bit RPG really blew the doors off the genre and set a new standard for cinematic storytelling. It was the first real experience that many North Americans had with the genre and the series. And so as a consequence, expectations were humongous for Final Fantasy VIII. It was a huge freaking deal. It was marketed to high heaven, and that's why it was put directly the opposite of the release of the Sega Dreamcast. The problem is most Americans didn't know that Final Fantasy, it was not going to be a direct sequel to Final Fantasy VII. It was going to be its own standalone game. So people were like, who the heck is this Squall guy? I don't know. Yeah, now that you mentioned, I guess that would be quite a shock for people who weren't familiar with RPGs or Final Fantasy because Final Fantasy games rarely have sequels, especially back then. And I can just imagine people who were like picked up Final Fantasy VIII thinking, oh man, I can't wait to find out what happened to Cloud and Tifa and what the hell is going on. And, and even more so here, right? Because like I say, this was the second major Final Fantasy game to ever come out. So I remember reading about this exact issue in some some issue or never of uh, official playstation magazine i remember reading about how they were trying to explain and convey that this was a completely different thing and i think that final fantasy 7 was so beloved and so impactful that it just overshadowed final fantasy 8 i saw a headline when i was doing research along the lines of kind of the middle child syndrome suffered by final fantasy 8 where it was just always going to be compared against one of the most important games of all time. And there were going to be people, a very loud minority, who were going to find it wanting. So short of a game that, you know, was the Empire Strikes Back in quality, which in itself was a little bit controversial because it was so different from Star Wars, it was just going, there was always going to be people who just found it wanting, in my opinion. Yeah, I think, yeah, it was always going to, 7 is such a monumental game, um, it, it was always going to going to have a problem in that regard. But the one thing that I would say that's interesting about this is I do think this is the last Final Fantasy game for a long time, possibly ever, where the development wasn't massively overshadowed by 7. This was the people who made 7. And for them, the success hadn't quite sunk in, or for mm. much of the for much of the development, it ha it wasn't really clear because they hadn't because although it had been a big success in Japan when they were first making this game, it hadn't even come out and been a huge deal in in the West. Um, and 
when you look at the other games, and you look at Nine, which is an introspective look back, um, so maybe you could say that Nine wasn't too concerned with Seven either, but then when you look at Ten, uh, and when you look at Twelve and, and, and Thirteen, especially Thirteen, <laughs> um, and so on, the, the Shadow of Seven just looms over it so large, and I don't think it does with eight, at least to the way, in, at least in the sense of the way it was made. I think in terms of the, the critical reception it had, totally, yeah. Um, I think a lot of people were blindsided by it. Um, but I do wonder, it's that thing of like, you know, there's the old urban legend, which I totally think is true, which suggests that Final Fantasy VII was one of the most returned games of all time hmm. because people saw those CG ads ah. and went and bought it and then got the game and was like, what the <laughs> hell is this? I took it I back. About that. Um, it's it's always been an urban legend, but I I totally it's one of those things where it, it must have truth in it because Sony was running, you know, Sony spent a hundred million dollars or something crazy like that mm-hmm. on ads for Final Fantasy VII, and they were running them in the middle of NFL games and stuff like that. And I imagine people who would buy sports games and stuff like oh. that, you know, were going out and buying this Japanese RPG. Probably saw the opening cutscene, went, "This was awesome. This is awesome." Got to the Scorpion sentinel and went what is going on like why aren't they moving why are they standing in a line um and so i wonder if if because seven sort of got that out of the way eight didn't suffer from that stuff as much people knew what they were getting but then they were like where's cloud where's (laughs) yeah but then you got that right right and i think um you know uh tim rogers touches on this in his excellent final fantasy 7 remake review which is that like the moment people first saw Final Fantasy VIII and saw those more realistic models, the first thought of like seventy five percent of the players was Final Fantasy VII would look pretty good if it looked like this, um, and that has been I think the 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 legacy. This is the shadow that chases the whole series now. It's like the first time voice acting. Uh, you know, we we you get that scene at the start of Final Fantasy X where they're sitting around the campfire. How many people watched that scene and went? Final Fantasy VII would be pretty good with voice acting, which of course is why we've ended up where we are now, right? But <laughs> I do think, at least from a development standpoint, this game wasn't obsessed with Seven in the way that most of the games that have followed have that's, been. Yeah, that's actually a really op- interesting observation. Thinking about it as well, this is kind of a side thought, but do you remember, this was also around the time that Square was releasing um, their collections, uh, Chronicles and... Uh, I can't remember the name of the other one. The one with Final Fantasy VI. Anthology, Anthology yeah. yeah. And it had those really incredible cutscenes like, uh, of like Final Fantasy VI and Terra getting to the Magitek armor. I remember downloading those like in my computer lab at school, these little tiny screens, and like everyone just kind of huddled around that watching instead of, instead of uh, doing their work. But it was, it was a really <laughs> interesting time for Square Enix's advancement in uh, CGI and stuff like that. For my money, I still think Square Enix does some of the best CGI in the industry by far. In the wake of the success of Final Fantasy VII, development begins on Final Fantasy VIII in mid-1997, so pretty much right after the release of Final Fantasy VII. This was Square when it was still kind of small and nimble, and it was like, go, 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 we're we're on to the next thing. And it wrapped development only about a year and a half later, which is completely insane when you think about just how much time and effort goes into making a Final Fantasy day. You know, Final Fantasy 16 gets announced last year, and everyone's like, well, I look forward to seeing it in 2030. (laughs) Everyone's a little bit salty about the delays and stuff. 
this is why they don't have any source code though, right? Because they would literally finish one game, format the hard drive. Oh, I never thought of it that way, but that's kind of depressing. They they would literally, yeah, because it is it is crazy. Um, think about it, and and when you think about the. To be fair, I think the other that's the other interesting thing. The, the the development staff of this game, nobody really knows how many people it was, but it was definitely like over 150 people, which was massive for a mm-hmm. game at that time. Enormous. I mean, it's even relatively large by today's standards. Um. So yeah, it was a lot of people and a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about it, and those like you say, you say to yourself, how could they have erased the source code? How could they have done that? But back then, memory was still such at a premium. Like, a gig was still extreme, like several hundred dollars. It was not cheap. So, Square was not a billion dollar studio here. It had to had to save on resources. So I understand now why that source code is probably lost. From the start, Square set out to make Final Fantasy VIII an event. It was planting its flag. It was saying, "This is bigger. This is better." This is monument. This is going to be a monumental release. So, I mean, they had the realistic character models, as we already discussed. They, I mean, the cuts, the CG in Final Fantasy VII was really inconsistent. In Final Fantasy VIII, it was very consistent and mm-hmm. gorgeous. It's like it looked amazing at the time. Uh, the translation was actually good in this occasion, and everything about Final Fantasy. Eight was just generally bigger, better, more polished. I mean, it's really kind of exemplified by the opening where you have, it's like, okay, you liked One Winged Angel? Check this out. <laughs> the thing that bothers me about that intro to this day, and this is a, a Scott Sharkey who brought this up years and years and years ago. Yeah, it's such a cool intro with like Cypher and, and Squall fighting and the, the sword fight. And then you you realize, oh, they were just having a spat. They were just having like they were just like having a a, a schoolyard fight. Not like they were like mortal, cool, bitter enemies at that point. Yeah, but this is the this is actually I think one of the things it's one of the things I really like about the characters of this game is that so many Japanese RPGs are coming of age stories of you know people in their late teens, um, but they don't act like it. You know, and this is a, a a Japanese RPG where all the characters are teens in a coming of age story, but they're acting like teens in a coming they of sure age story. Are. Cypher is 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 uh, is like a a, a pissy dick, <laughs> and we all knew one of those at school. And then when you learn a little bit more about him, much of which is optional. In fact, it's probably some of my favourite story beats in the game are these little hidden optional bits. The game is excellent at that. Um, when you learn a little bit more about him, you realise that he's quite sad. Sad boy. <laughs> and I really like that. I, I, you know, in many ways, I sometimes think the game is at its worst when it's all about, you know, the whole of time is going to end and, you know, the world is going to collapse. When it's the little teenage melodramas, I actually think that's when the game really shines. Yeah, Alex, I agree. Because one of the things that I kept thinking about was how much I enjoyed how down to earth it was for a lot of it how much it goes for magical realism i guess you would call it or kind of this futuristic alternate version of europe i just should say i love the design of technology like i love Mm -hmm. that when you see cars they are either science fiction or they are like neo 1920s (laughs) 1920s junkers 
it's great. No, like this, you know, that Art Deco. Oh sort yes, of yes. Look. I just, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Sorry, go, go, go. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say that I really liked it when it was being kind of down to earth and it had like this real politique going on, and then it kind of goes off the rails starting you know at the the end of disc two when we see the big uh, revelation about edia and it starts uh, introducing the time travel and the time compression and ellen's special power and everything and it's it's fine and everything but there's a part of me that kind of wishes that it had stuck with the the teenage melodrama and just focusing on the battle against the sorceress in the the new sorceress war i just want like the story about laguna period and yeah, that was perfect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we will never, ever know exactly what happened, I dare say. But the story does smack to me of they were writing it and they reached a point and they didn't know where to take it. <laughs> I think a like, lot of hmm. Square games are like that. Okay. I think, yeah, I think, but but 8 is definitely one of the less one of the less successful ones. And even again, you know, we're talking about how uh, Fujin and Rajin were leftovers from 7. Mm-hmm. Um, Adia's design was, was, was done before eight started production, like it was Namora doodling towards the end of, of seven. So it, was, it wasn't like she was even designed for this game. It was like, here's this character. He described it as she was his attempt to design a character that looked more like an Amano character, which is why you've got, uh, or Amano character, yeah. sorry, which is why you've got that sort of intricate headpiece and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, when you, when you hear that, you're like, yeah, maybe this game was thrown together in that it sense. was kind of a but so but so was seven yeah it was kind of a when i think about it it was really a weird time design wise for media like that was around the time the prequel started and queen amidala was starting to get infamous for for wearing all that crazy stuff and that's reminding me a bit of the sorceress frankly i think yeah I, I think the one the one that's most guilty of that is ff12 right you watch the ff12 intro and it's like oh i get it this is lord yes. of the rings and the star wars prequels combined. <laughs> you're totally right i get it <laughs> Um, yeah, but it, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about, um, that story, the, like the, the, the twists the story takes because it does sort of, it loses itself, but also it's always grounded in those characters. So like, even when all that crazy stuff is going on, whenever it comes back to Squall, and actually I think in particular, whenever it comes back to Squall's inner monologue, like when I think of this, I think of the scenes where control of Balam Garden is sort of thrust upon Squall by Sid, who is just a complete moron. <laughs> and a dorky waistcoat. It's just a yeah, totally Robin palms. Williams. He looks like Robin <laughs> Williams. Even though yeah. it's, it's that... Yeah, it's, Phoenix versus but, Robin Williams. The game. But it, it is that... It, it, but, but it is that thing if you hit, you know, you, you see Squall's in a monologue in the, in the text boxes and he's just pissed and frustrated and he's such a believable teenager. Um... Yeah, whereas, you know, I don't know how old Cloud is supposed to be in FF7. 21, 21 yeah. right? I had the shirt. So there's only a couple of so there's only a couple of years in it between Cloud and Squall, but Cloud feels way older than he actually is. And people will go, Oh well that's because he suffered so much no, it, it's just that thing of like they design a character and then they slap an age on and they always lower it. It's like how Sid acts like an old man and he's like thirty five <laughs> or whatever. Oh god. In in seven <laughs> yes. that is. Um but Squall actually feels his age, which doesn't happen often. Eight and nine are good at that, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'll um, give you that, because I was saying in our previous episode that I, I seriously dislike Squall, especially in the beginning of the game, uh, in the scene where Quistis is trying to get some comfort from him after she's been 
ejected as an instructor and he's just like, whatever, whatever, leave me alone. I just felt like that was a really not a justified scene, not a good way to get me to endear me to Squall. I know he has a glow up. I know he has problems, but just being so cold I mean, like that. that was the translation. That's true. The translation I, I, I changed I feel like the translation, even though it's a lot better than Sevens, there's still a lot of uh, that can be smoothed out, like Cypher's chicken wuss insult. What is that? What is a chicken wuss? I hate it either way. It made him a lot harsher. I kind of li- like that, yeah. I kind of like that, though. because it's, it's so stupid. Of, it's, ex- it's exactly the sort of benign insult that would wind up somebody like Zell. That's true. Mm-hmm. That, yes, I do like Zell. You know... And, and, and I mean, you know, I don't like the face tattoo. Yeah, but I do. Like so nineties like, though. I don't understand the. I don't understand the Mike Tyson. No more. Saw a photo of Mike Tyson. Right, this is the thing. Oh, absolutely. Like, that's how that happened. He said, "That's cool. I'm doing that." <laughs> uh, I was saying our last time. I said I really like uh, some of the character gestures in Eight are really fantastic. Like the way Zell wipes his hand on his pants when he's trying to shake hands with Squall, who of course doesn't reciprocate. But I really appreciate <sighs> that they put that little gesture in there. I love the details in yeah, this game. Like when they detail. walk into a room and all of them immediately move into different ways. Like you'll see Zell pacing back and forth. You'll see Selfie standing by the window. You'll see Squall standing moodily over in the corner. And just those little movements in a PlayStation 1 mm-hmm. game is informing you so much about their characters. Yeah, really good at visual storytelling versus Final Fantasy VII, which had much more instances of characters entering a room and standing. And, I mean, the room would be beautifully rendered, yeah. and I think that Final Fantasy VII was exceptionally good at making environments, but there was only so many resources to go around, so characters would have to be blocky Lego men, and Final Fantasy VIII was a huge advancement over that. This is what I mean about about detail in general. I think in the story as well, I think... Some of it gets lost in the translation and some of it gets lost because it definitely feels like a story where they were laying the tr- the, the track as they were already on the train. Mm. <laughs> like um, the walls and granite. But it's, it's sort of like, yeah, yeah, totally. It's, 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 yeah, it's the, it's the penguin, it's, it's the penguin, you know, in front of them, mocking them as they desperately try to, to lay down the next story beat. But when you think about like, you know, Cypher as a character, I absolutely love that. Um, I want to, tell this 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 one because not everybody might have even noticed it but like so at the start of the game there is if you go to the library there's some incidental dialogue where like one of the characters one of the other students mentions oh cypher's checked out that movie again he's had it out like for nine months now or something like that it's ridiculous he needs to let other people watch this film so you're like okay completely optional dialogue cypher's obsessed with this movie and then obviously, as the game goes on, he's ranting about his romantic dream and being the sorceress's knight and all that sort of stuff. And he also hates Squall. And it's like, why does he hate Squall? Then you get a little bit later into the game and you see that uh, you actually play as Laguna as he is a film star mm-hmm. filming this movie. And if you've been paying attention, you realize he's filming the movie that Cypher is obsessed with because he's this knight who uses a gun blade, who is saving a sorceress. And then when you even look at the animation, to come back to what you guys were saying, Cypher has the same battle stance that Laguna (laughs) has in that flashback when he's recording that movie. So, because you, you you have a battle as part yeah, of the Yeah, and the, 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 the funny thing about plot. that is Laguna's holding the gun blade like an idiot because he doesn't use a gun blade. He doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, and so it's like, 
Cypher is, has modeled himself on this movie star and he hates Squall because it's a subconscious thing almost. Squall reminds him of his hero, which of course he does yeah. <laughs> for, for other reasons. Yeah. And it, I just love how that's all joined up, but it, it's really weird. Any other game would be so proud of that plot point. They'd be like, this is so damn clever. It's sort of like, cause it's, it's intertwined and it's told in an interesting out of sequence way. That's sort of like, you know, it's like a Stephen Moffat Doctor mm-hmm. Who thing, but it's just there and they don't even draw any attention to it. It's nuts. <laughs> that is a really cool little detail. I love it when Square Enix is subtle like that. When they let themselves be subtle and clever, it's they could put up some really, really fantastic stuff. Well, let's run through the rest of the development really quickly. One thing we have not touched on, and I mean, this is arguably the biggest part of Final Fantasy VIII. It was intended to be a love story. Yeah, it still And Katase said... From the start, our principal objective with Final Fantasy VIII was to tell a story that revolved around the two characters, Squall and Renoa. Up till now, Final Fantasy games have featured large ensemble casts and a story balanced between the two char- different characters who each have their own individual dramas. But this time, we were serious about using the sub-characters specifically to prop up the story of the hero and heroine. And I remember thinking when Final Fantasy VIII was announced and it's like, it's going to be a, a love story, thinking, wow video games have come so far it's like <laughs> wow look at the storytelling and of course we had had love stories at that point i didn't play pc rpgs but it struck me as immediate like wow final fantasy 8 really going for it it's evolving storytelling in video games yeah and i remember being really impressed by the logo because of course that emphasizes the the romance element of the game although if you really want to give me a romance related final fantasy logo that breaks my heart it's final fantasy 15's for reasons I can't really get into, because what you see is the incomplete logo. You get the complete logo at the end of the game, and that just that just shatters me. But as, as a good second for a romance-related logo, Final Fantasy VIII takes the it. The one good part of Final Fantasy XV. <laughs> well, I mean, even then, it's sort of sullied, I think, a little bit by the fact that that was not, you know, it was retrofitted. Let's yeah, say. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I do like that the logo is, is character-focused, mm-hmm. which... Not an enormous number of the of the of the Final Fantasy logos up to that point had uh, had had been recently because you sort of had Magic Armor and a dragon and and the meteor. Um, they hadn't done a character focused logo since the earlier games. So yeah, you're right. You know, they need to do that with the earlier. And ones. I think it's one of the most beautiful ones as well. I think it's one of uh, I think it's one of Amano's best. I agree. Ones. A demo was released October 31st, 1998 on the Squaresoft 92 collect, or 98, sorry, collector's CD volume two. Apparently you could get a demo desk with your pizza at Pizza Hut. <laughs> Very Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles of them. Uh, you couldn't do that up here. I never heard of that. <laughs> the demo was actually rated M for Mature, Ooh. and the game was subsequently rated T. It included a multitude of differences, such as Renoa being in the playable party instead of Cypher and Selfie during the Siege of Dalit. They wear their normal clothes, and the dialogue is different. Finally, the demo had an original song, Raid on Dalit. It sounds like a much more basic version of the landing. It did not make the cut, and I didn't particularly like it.
think it sounds. I think it's always no one really knows the truth about that song, but um, one of the things that has been suggested is it is very, very similar to a piece of music. I think it's a piece of Hans Zimmer music from a film that was out right around uh, the time that this game was in development. And the suggestion is it was the rock. That, um, yeah. Oh, yes. Really? And I think it, I think the suggestion was yeah that it was inspired and they deemed it was probably too close to the wire. So I gotta, yeah, I gotta listen to that because that's like one of the most replicated pieces of music out there for action stuff. What's funny is that in our Pantheon episode of Lufia 2, it was observed that uh, a Super Robot Wars composer directly lifted music from both Lufia 2 and Warcraft of all games. And it wasn't until they completely cribbed from Chrono Trigger that people went, wait a minute, you can't do that. People. <laughs> Bandai Namco subsequently issued a, an apology. So if you want to hear more <laughs> about that, go listen to our Lufia 2 Pantheon episode. Uh, final note that I want to make, Final Fantasy VIII has a large localization history. I che recommend checking out Legends of Localization, which does a great job of breaking it all down, specifically the history of Squall's Whatever. Whatever, which I think uh, encapsulates a lot of his characters because he can be very um, bitchy in the <laughs> Japanese version <laughs> as well. But also it kind of obfuscates a little bit of Squall's uh, only sane man energy in which he's constantly looking at characters throughout the game and going, what the heck are you doing? That is true. What kind of teacher are you like this? That is true because he is kind of a straight man where all his companions are bouncing off the walls. Like Selfie is just on the <laughs> ceiling all the time. Cypher is, so is Cypher and Zell is like he, he's got like cocaine up his butt or something he just won't settle down <laughs> so when you put it that way I do understand why Squall's a little bit pissy let's talk about the team and the studio this was really peak Squaresoft. Square made better games overall in the 16-bit era, but this was Square at its most beloved, arguably. Notably, key figures like Hironobu Sakaguchi were increasingly hands-off during this period, and this is where people like Tetsuya Nomura and Yoshinori Kitase were taking a much more active role in Final Fantasy, and that would continue to drive the series in the direction of the publisher for, for better or worse. <laughs> and I know I'm being extremely uh, understated in that. Um, the, speaking of Yoshinori Kitase, he was a director coming off Final Fantasy VII. And yeah, like Yoshinori Kitase, big person throughout, big fixture throughout uh, Final Fantasy's history. He has, a, I want to say, a very specific vision for the series, Alex. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, uh, the thing I'd say is, about Kitase is he sort of embodies one side of Final Fantasy and then um, Hiroyuki Ito, who we'll talk about in a moment, sort of embodies the other side. The, the Kitase, side that I like. You know, <laughs> the cat side. Well, Kitase, initially at least, right, he didn't even want to make video games. He saw Star Wars and he wanted to make movies, mm. right? Which is fine. Which tells Nothing you wrong a lot, with that. Many it? great people. Well, many great people entered video games that way. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of like, that's why... Um, he and Ito was, was such a good team on Final Fantasy VI because Ito did one side, he did all the video gamey stuff basically, and Katase focused on crafting a story. Um, and you saw the same when they both went and helped out on Chrono Trigger, um, where, you know, they shored up the elements where they were experts. Like, I think on Chrono Trigger, Katase was responsible, for instance, like for all those little touches that impact the trial. Ah, oh, that's such a great um, scene. And stuff like that. That's his, that's his thing. He likes storytelling. Um, but yeah, he has a pretty, I, I think that, that 
that seeing Star Wars as a young man and it defining his career, I think when you look at seven, when you look at eight, when you look at uh, 13, you can see exactly what he wants, really. Um, and yeah, for better or worse, um, which is why I, I, I note that all of Katase's Final Fantasy games have all been uh, as director or an involved producer, all the ones he's been really quite hands on with, except for the one that was def- the ones that were defined by Sakaguchi, have all sort of had that non-traditional fantasy side. They've all been sci-fi-ish or real-world-ish. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. Well, in that vein, he actually specifically referenced in a contemporary interview how Square was making Spirits Within at the time and how he kind of wanted Final Fantasy VIII to fit in that. So you could see how the cinematic uh, kind of influence was definitely operating on him, even from within uh, Square itself. Oh, yeah. I can see that influence for sure. That was that was Square's very artistic uh, period, I suppose. I'll put it that way. Square, we're going to make movies now, Final, yeah. and our games are going to reflect that. It's and we be all great. know how well that went. Oh, no, it all went terribly wrong. Well, the, interesting, the interesting thing is, it's, I think the, 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 the impact of the spirits within was also that people were not in Japan. You know, Sakaguchi, I don't know exactly when he went, but at some point during Final Fantasy VIII production, he obviously went off to Hawaii. Um to set up Square USA and Square Pictures. Um, and, you know, Ito, I think, towards the tail end of 8, likewise. You know, much of Final Fantasy IX was made over there, mm-hmm. uh, which is why Final Fantasy IX has been has got loads of Western artists. Yeah, created. yeah, it's um, really cool. So it's, it's like that interesting thing of, like, even though uh, even though Sakaguchi was, was on this game as an executive producer, one has to wonder how much influence he was actually holding on a day-to-day basis, not just because of the spirits of him, but because he was, it's not like he was making another game or another, or a movie in the same office. He was flying here, there and everywhere, signing deals, you know, making stuff happen. Um, So I do think this one is truly Katase's game in that sense. The writer was Kazushige Nojima, scenario writer on Final Fantasy VII, Final Fantasy X, Kingdom Hearts, and interestingly enough, Bahamut Lagoon. Mm. This is what Nojima had to say about the story. Sakaguchi was the one who started saying the theme of FF8 was love, so Sakaguchi at least had an impact there. And Well, at some point that stuck. For me, when I hear that, it's like, what do you mean? What kind of love? It was a huge challenge carrying that theme throughout the game with the space station scene, the parade, and everything else. To be certain, love is a theme of FF8, but in my opinion, to be more specific, it's more like falling in love. But what comes after, after you know someone? I tried to suggest that question, to drop hints of that idea in the story. And in the end, there are many ways to enjoy FF8, but I hope that some of those little moments, which at first glance seem insignificant, end up sticking in your memory. Their real meaning may become apparent later and i just have to say time compression is such a nojima thing and you see that in final <laughs> fantasy 7 remake hey yes. oh no and you but you see that in 13 as well right like yeah he, yeah i find that i find that frankly kind of obnoxious i mean uh, he could be pretty good honestly final fantasy 7 remake is actually a well-written game until like the final quarter or thereabouts and then <laughs> see, it goes think, into crazy think, town I think the crazy town is pretty awesome in that game. It depends on where they go with it. Yeah. But it doesn't reach that point of stupid. It's sort of like Final Fantasy in, in Final Fantasy Eight terms, Seven Remake now right now is at the point like 
where the gardens crash into each other. <laughs> and that's awesome. The problem is everything that comes immediately after that. So we'll yeah. see what happens in a couple of years. <laughs> but I think that the thing to note about the story as well is like Najima obviously is the man for it. But this also far more. So. People credit so much of Seven's story to Namora. But really Seven was was a little bit of everyone. But Eight is really the one where like Namora began to define a lot of it from the very, very start. So like schools and school days, yeah. that was him. That was Namora. He was like, we should try and do something with a school. Why? And like Najima's idea at the start was like, I want to have characters that are all a similar sort of age, an ensemble that where they all understand each other because they're all a similar age. But it was Namora who said, let's do school. So it's a, in a, in lots of elements like that. I think, you know, the story is definitely a collaborative effort between the two of them. Well, we should talk about Tetsuya Numero now, who, of course, I think really comes into his own in Final Fantasy VIII. I mean, he was there since at least Final Fantasy VI, maybe even Final Fantasy V, I can't remember, but he was designing characters for FF6, and then in FF7, he took a much larger role, and in FF8, he really becomes the Nomura that we all know and love, <laughs> as exemplified by Squall, who was really just River Phoenix in disguise and had lots of belts. So and, of course, belts. characters, like as we already mentioned, were Raijin and Fujin, were immigrants from the Turks. Nomura absolutely loves the Turks. He's completely infatuated with them. And Nomura had a lot of the ideas with the story, and some of the best ones, honestly. Like, it was him who came up with the idea of tying together the Squall and Laguna stories. Yeah. and But, though, I... I think that it was his uh, supervisor, Yusuke Nomura, who said all of Nomura's characters ended up looking like pretty boys. So he's kind of teasing him a little bit. Well, they and he do. was asked to uh, cute. rough up characters like Irvin just a little bit, though I don't think he succeeded in roughing them up. They were still too pretty. They still got, no, they had scars. They were very pretty scars. It's like, <laughs> yes. we'll give them a Gorgeous little punch scars. in the face, but more of a tap than a punch. There, there, perfect. And one thing about, one thing about, um, one thing about Nomura is which I think is quite um, significant, is he was really the driver of Guardian Forces in this game. Mm. Not only the visual design of them, but also the, the scenes that play out, which really have become s- most symbolic of this game. Um, so that's his, that's his other big legacy in this game, right? Is is directing those scenes. I mean, his fingerprints are all over this game, but in a good way. Like, you could see why... Nomura just became a bigger and bigger part at Square because dude was a pretty talented artist, came up with a lot of iconic designs, and also like really defined the look of Latter-day Square in so many ways, but then also had interesting ideas for game design. So it's just that uh, he kind of went off track over time. He tends to go, that's his one weakness. He tends to go off track. And I mean, I his will. His def- one weakness, exactly. His single weakness. And I will, <laughs> I will defend him more until the day I die, even though I'm very oh. frustrated with him. I, I love his, his stupid, <laughs> stupid stuff. I just, he, he, sometimes he comes up with the most brilliant ideas that I love so much. And then sometimes he comes up with like 50,000 belts on a, on a kindergartner or whatever, and it's just, Nomura, what are you even doing? But I think the good cancels out the bad with Nomura. If you gave Tets- if you gave Squall Leonhardt a cigarette, he would basically be Tetsuya Nomura, just like <laughs> smoking moodily in the background. Yeah. This is me. This is my OP. Do not see him. 
The designer was Hiroyuki Ito, as we already discussed, uh, the yin to Kitasi's yang, the mad genius behind the junction system, director and battle system designer for FF6 and FF9, designed the systems for FF Tactics, and ultimately brought FF12 home after Matsuno left the project. So many of Final Fantasy's best ideas come from Ito. Like, if you think about the systems, uh, like that's they're synonymous for, with Ito. And I think that his kind of declining role in the series over time was uh, kind of coincided with the decline in quality overall of Final Fantasy's gameplay. Junction is not a good system. I hate Junction so much. Oh, boy. Here we go, Nadia. Here we go. <laughs> we'll talk about this a little. Yeah, it's just it's well, I don't know. He is just supremely talented, and and it's bizarre that we haven't heard much more from him in literally mm-hmm. fifteen years now. Um, wow, a couple of yeah, a couple of special thanks credits and stuff like that. He is still, or at least he was at, a couple of years ago, still at Square. Um, he worked on the remaster of FF Twelve. Yeah, yeah, Nomura's and he worked on. Well, he didn't work on, but like he okayed Van in Dissidia because. That's the way Square works, where it's like if they're going to do something with a character from your game, they go and ask you for permission um, <laughs> and to sign off on it. So that's kind of cool. But yeah, he he he. It's it's so weird. I actually I, it was two thousand and sixteen, maybe. I uh, had a bit of a chat with um, Shinji Hashimoto, who was the producer on this game, actually, and. I asked him, is Ito still at the company? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's working on a, uh, a big product project proposal right now. And at the time, that was right after Versus had become 15. And I was like, oh, we must be doing Final Fantasy 16. But apparently not. So who knows? <laughs> but come back. You, 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 are, you are wasted on, on doing nothing. Indeed. Mm-hmm. What a shame. Finally, composer Nobuo Uematsu needs no introduction, really. As usual, he was influenced by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer for the soundtrack, which was really his boldest soundtrack to date. He also had influences of Simon and Garfunkel, Elton John, and he used a Roland SC88 synthesizer for the whole score, and it's a hell of a soundtrack, honestly, from the musical haunting musical stings that accompany Edia Ultimisia to the thumping war music like The Landing. I, it is one of the handful of games that I always made sure to have sound, headphones on. I just never get tired of the soundtrack. Also took a bit from Rush, uh, the opening of I Think I'm a Lion, or Maybe I'm a Lion. It's literally just YYZ. Uh, I approve, but I just had to point that out. I think it's probably one of his best um, soundtracks. I think there can be some some intense debates about this, but if we're just talking about the work of of, of Uematsu, I would say um, like seven has the most memorable independent songs. Nine is the best cohesive soundtrack, but eight has the best melodies by far. Mm. By mm-hmm. far, by far. Um, he just did an astonishing job. Um, yeah, like, just ridiculously good. We actually uh, talked about Man with the Machine Gun in the last episode of Blood Guide at the time of this recording and talked a lot about uh, Uematsu's advancement from 7 to 8, which 8 is not my favorite soundtrack, but it still has a lot I like on there, when Man with the Machine Gun being probably my favorite song. And you can really tell, it the way that they had the glow up with the graphics from 7 to 8 
I think Yamatsu had something very similar with music from 7 to 8, because even though, yes, 7 does have far more memorable tunes, I feel like he finally got a hold of how to do how to use how to do music on PlayStation with 8 because 7 sounds very MIDI-ish and 8 sounds a lot richer. I think, you know, also just tracks like The Oath um, and like Fisherman's Horizon, the the finest town theme in any Japanese RPG. Mm, love it so much. Um, it's it, he was just he was just on something for this game. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's crazy. And people don't talk about like Sims people talk about using. great Final Fantasy end boss themes like Dancing Mad and One Winged Angel, but they don't give enough credit to the extreme, which is going through four separate versions or four separate forms of Ultimecia and kind of culminating in that final battle. I think, honestly, that entire suite of music is on the level of Dancing Man. It's just incredible. You got to listen to it. Yeah. I think also an interesting soundtrack point to note is that this is a game, this is a Final Fantasy game without many character themes. Mm, There is no Zell theme. There is no selfie theme there are certain motifs that are used for scenes those characters are in sometimes but it's not like seven where it's like here is barrett's theme here is tifa's theme here is eris theme it's not like nine where it's like here is you know here's the zidane's upbeat theme here's the plodding steiner music um, here's the jester's theme jester's theme yeah, always sound in my head does not have that like even like there's no cypher theme it's it's strange the the only um character based musical motifs in this game is you've got a theme for Squall and Renoa as a pair and you've got you know the sorceress sort of uh, the the Liber- liberale fatale sort of and the succession of witches those two things sort of go together right um, mm-hmm. but there's no character themes really which is really interesting as a choice that is very interesting i wonder why he went with that choice uh i figure a theme for zell would just be him mashing his face on the keyboard <laughs> <That'd be done. laughs> This is where I'll put out the hot take that this is Uematsu's finest soundtrack, or at least it's his boldest and most sophisticated soundtrack. I love Final Fantasy VI's soundtrack, but it is really boisterous and adventurous and very 16-bit, where Final Fantasy VIII feels, frankly, more modern and more interesting. It uses silence in ways that are more interesting, has greater breadth, greater range. I don't get me wrong. I love Final Fantasy VI's soundtrack. I think it's more listenable, but the way that the soundtrack fits so much of Final Fantasy VIII, I just really love it. There is one that I think is more sophisticated mm-hmm. um, from a musical standpoint, if not more memorable, and that's actually Lost Odyssey, but that's a whole different oh, conversation. Interesting. Uh, but I definitely think that is an overlooked... Um, that felt like... It feels like he knew that was his last big score when he wrote that to me. And he put a lot into it, I think. But, you know, yeah. Well, this is where we should talk about Eyes on Me, which was the theme of Final Fantasy VIII and kind of the first time that the game introduced a pop song that was an accompaniment. This is where Final Fantasy was at the time. I remember it was kind of a big deal. To me, at the time, it spoke just like, wow, Final Fantasy VIII's big deal. Look how how mature it is. It has a pop song attached to it and everything. It has lyrics by, I think the song was by Fei Wong, wasn't it? And that was not a, that was not a small thing back then. Nope. 
It was a, apparently there was a, it was suggested that there should be a pop song for Final Fantasy VII. The story, the idea was scrapped for time. Uh, for FF8, Uematsu felt a ballad would work well with the theme, and they eventually chose Fei Wong, as we already said. Uh, with Uematsu saying her voice and mood seem to match my image of the song exactly, while her ethnicity fits the international image of Final Fantasy. Aizami sold more than 500,000 copies and was the best-selling video game music disc ever until it was overtaken by Utada Hikaru's Hikari from Kingdom Hearts, and it was on a young Cat Bailey's playlist for a very long time. Aww, yeah. baby. I, um, I, I, I like Eyes mm. on Me. I think the lyrics are extremely cheesy, but when you consider the, the context behind the song, once you learn it, especially by the end of the game, which I'm sure we'll get into, it, it's a very sweet song. It has some really awkward parts like lyrics where that just don't really fit in my opinion but it's a very nice tune and i think it really suits the ending of the game importantly it actually yeah like you say it actually has a story role where you know um to be fair melodies of life does too in that it's the lullaby that you know the the, the garnet garnet's mother used to sing but most of the other final fantasy vocal themes that have followed since have all been, um, you know, kiss me goodbye from twelve. It's obviously written from the perspective of Ash about I forgot I can't even remember his name, but dead husband, um, and stuff like that. But you know, they're all whatever the Final Fantasy Thirteen theme song was called. Um, none of them have had that groundedness in the world itself since. Um, yeah, which it really... except actually, except I have to give credit where it's due. The theme song that Uematsu wrote for Final Fantasy XV Comrades, the multiplayer, um, <laughs> is very rooted in in the world in which that multiplayer takes place, and is awesome. Actually, and the fourteen ones, obviously, like answers. The fourteen stuff. ones are very, very, very linked. Like Shadowbringers to the Edge is a really, really powerful song when you listen to it in context. But yeah, to be clear, I don't think Eyes on Me is that great a song actually and it's played during it's one cute. of the kind of the more cringe moments in the entire game which is when Renoa and Squall are yes. having a zero g cuddle on the Ragnarok as it's going into re-entry <laughs> it's not in my best moments list put it that way and the the song kind of clangs from that moment but it redeems itself i think in the final sequence during the ending, I think it's kind of nice when it's played mm-hmm. there. Mm, exactly. And I like the non-vocal yes. version that's played on the piano with Julia. Like it point, it pops up at various points throughout the story in ways that are inoffensive at the very least. Yeah, this is what I meant about Umatsu's use use of like of, of melody and and leitmotif in this game. Mm-hmm. It's just really really good. Um, I don't think a Final Fantasy game quite uses. Limited in the same way until seven remake. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's and it's a fine song. I think part of me sometimes wishes that it hadn't become such a Final Fantasy staple. I'm at the point these days where I'm like, does every Final Fantasy game actually need a vocal theme? <laughs> um, like thirteen definitely didn't need it, but we got one anyway. Um, Here you go. It, it, Eat it, it up. It, it did, you know. Thirteen didn't need it so badly that when it came to the West, they just replaced it with a Leona Lewis song. So, you know, it clearly was irrelevant. Um, so I, I sort of wish it didn't have that legacy. But it is a, it is a nice little song. It does have the the grammatically nightmarish 
if frown is shown then as a lyric, <laughs> but other than that. It does, sure does. Okay, these are the five best moments in Final Fantasy VIII, as chosen by me, because I'm the one putting together these notes. And number one, the landing on Dalit. Uh, from the beats to the landing, to the chase with the spider walker, this whole sequence is so much fun. Dalit is absolutely gorgeous, and it does such an incredible job of setting the tone. When I think people think of Final Fantasy VIII, they just automatically think of this, not the least because it was featured in the demo, because it's the perfect demo level. It was also in the commercial. I remember the landing footage. Being, I think it was the uh, first screenshot the they well. ever showed was Squall on the boat, looking ahead, looking all like really intense. I actually think in an interesting alternate universe, that is the opening of the game and functions similarly to the bombing mission as opposed to the mm. very calm. Wow. That's what they should have done, honestly. You might be right. Yeah, I, I, the like, is... I like that you get the day-to-day life a little bit of mm-hmm. these characters. But you could have started in media res and been like, who are these characters? Oh, wow. Squall and Cypher really don't like each other. There's a lot of excitement. And then you go back and then you have the come down of being back at the the garden. You find out that it was all a test. And then they can all fight with their swords and hurt each other with their, (laughs) scar each other, with their pain, their their boy pain. Boy pain? Boy pain. That's the subtitle for Final Fantasy. I just love the details on Dalit so much. Um, Things like the dog that's running around and yapping at you. Yes, that's I love that dog, and it it kind of yaps when the uh, I think it's the spider walker starts approaching, and it, it just kind of cringes and runs. Yes, that's adorable. And obviously, all that stuff, all that stuff impacts your your seed mm. score. Also, does it? <laughs> yeah, things like if you talk to the dog, it's negative on your ranking because why? At the end, because you so if you no, talk you to the dog, save the when dog. You just, save the dog. Yeah, no, 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 no. They're two different things. If you talk to the dog when you're waiting in the square, uh, that's negative. If you save the dog when you're running to escape, that's positive. I didn't know you could save the dog. Now I feel bad. It, if if you talk to anyone, it's negative uh, uh, apart from your members of your own squad. Hmm. Don't talk to anybody. I love the spider walker chase so much. It's so intense and so fun. Um, And it shows that Square, even at this time, really just wanted to make uh, Uncharted. They didn't want to make RPGs anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is an an Uncharted uh, uh, franchise now. No more RPGs. I mean, Final Fantasy VIII has so many of those set pieces where it's like Square's like, how can we work in action sequences? We don't want to necessarily be stuck with this. Uh, kind of turn-based nonsense, and that's, that's very much the Katase feel, I think. Number two, the sorceress's assassination at the end of disc one. 
The finale of Disc 1 is basically a Mission Impossible-style quest to assassinate Sorceress Edia. Galbadia is a great setting, there's a whiff to kind of real politique to it, the big parade and the crazy speech are highlights as well, plus there's that gorgeous cutscene of Edia's helmet was drawing into her hairpiece as I already mentioned, and then it culminates into a super cool cutscene where Squall hops into yeah, a car, drives through the crowd, engages the sorceress directly, it's really intense, what a perfect ending to disc one. I love this entire sequence. I also think that sequence really sets. Oh, it's funny actually, now in remake Advent Children World, I don't think it does, <laughs> but in the original Final Fantasy VII versus the original Final Fantasy VIII, I think Squall in that cutscene, the way he acts, that's what sets him apart from Cloud. He is like professional in a way that Cloud is not. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like they've all sort of merged in the modern age. But back then, I feel like there was a there was a discernible difference. And when it's just rad, though. Oh, it's so rad! And the way that Squall takes charge, like it, it kind of dry makes makes it more sense when people are like, "Okay, Squall, you're the leader," because he gets Irvin to shoot. He is very cool and professional and directing everybody around and getting everybody to do it. And then when things start to go haywire he is able to improvise and get in there to attack the sorceress directly. So it's in that moment that I think really solidifies Squall as kind of a badass that you're kind of rooting for. I love what he says to Irvin there as well. I love how he says, um, you know, you don't even have to hit her. If you just fire, mm-hmm. you'll take care of it. It's it, it, it cements him as what he actually doesn't want to be, but he's... Mm-hmm. And when he shoots the, uh, when he actually fires the sniper rifle, the way that it turns into a CG thing, and you see the bullet tracking, and then it smacks right into the seal, uh, right into the shield from uh, Edia, uh, like that entire sequence is gorgeous as well, ca- capped off by a squall saying, "All right, Irvin, you you did your job. Time for me to go do my thing." So uh, that was always like. That, for, that to me was the moment when Final Fantasy VIII always truly got going was the uh, the attack on Delling City and everything. And it helps that Delling City is one of the most beautiful towns in Final Fantasy VIII. I love the hotel. I love the whole Arc de Triomphe kind of square that's going on there. I like Final Fantasy VIII's weird obsession with public transit where you're always riding buses and trains <laughs> and everything. I just think it's I neat. love that, though. I'm such yeah, a and, and renting really that. crappy boxy cars. Yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> train, and, train, and, and having having a fuel item. Yes, that you have to fuel the car. You could rent it's, cars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of made me mad when I played the first time. I wanted to ride Chocobo. It was like right from but the you start. Can. But no, you drive a car. You can totally ride. You can totally ride a Chocobo. Yeah, I know you can. Yeah, but I felt really weird driving a car, and then I was exploring around my salary went down and i said i feel so weird about this this is not a final fantasy game to me get a pay cut stop exploring I got a pay cut for for taking my time yeah what, what the hell <laughs> Number three, the Battle of the Gardens. A uh, kind of uneven disc two is capped off by an absolutely amazing battle 
between the gardens. The first time that you see Galbadia Garden coming up on Balam, which by the way is flying now, which itself is of another course. great moment. And they zoom yes. in and you're like, oh boy, here we go. And you see Cypher standing there looking at you and he has all the motorcycles ready to take off and Squall has to give the orders to like everybody prepare for battle. Ah, so good. Just got that attitude of mm -hmm. a, a real action movie that really in, in Seven... I think the only time you even glimpsed anything close to that was just the end where you sort of parachute back into Midgar. Other than that, there's nothing quite like this. And some elements of it are, you know, a bit dated, like the weird fight where you're hanging on a rope and it sort of sucks. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> that looked amazing that in 1999. Sort of it really did. Yeah, it looked did. amazing, but it controlled, it controlled so, oh, so, so bad. But, but, you know, I, I think at least it looked we, cool. I think we can forgive that, right? And, yeah. and instead you're just looking and you're going... And I think actually you, you say disc two is uneven. I think yes, the prison sucks, but I think the missile base is great. Like a mm. god, a Final Fantasy game that has a dungeon where if you play your cards right in dialogue options, there's no combat mm -hmm. until the boss at the end. That's great. Mm -hmm. um, and the tension as you go to Garden where it's intercutting back and forth between missiles launching and missiles flying through the air as you go deeper into Garden, and then. And then, the, and then you get all the great stuff with Squall, where he's being anointed a leader, and he hates it. And then you get the battle, <laughs> and it's just—I think I actually think that section of disc two, probably from the missile base to the end of disc two, is the best bit of this game. I can't necessarily disagree with you. The missile base, and it has Selfie leading the party, and Selfie is automatically hilarious. I love that there are zero. Uh, restrictions on that, apart from that Selfie must go to the base and Squall must go to Balor. So you can do any combination and the dialogue changes quite significantly as, as a result. Really good. Really good. And then when you actually get into Galbadia Garden, uh, the dungeon... Well, first of all, you've already been there, so there's a bit of a, an eerie feeling because everybody's gone. So they've mm. already established it, right? And then... There was, uh, when you encounter Cerberus, who's in the middle of the, the actual area, as a, uh, a an optional GF that you can go and grab. And that's like an actually a pretty fun boss battle. Kind of hard because Cerberus is using a lot of uh, status attacks on you and everything and can hit fairly hard if you're not leveled high enough. There's a lot of opportunities to draw very powerful spells if you are at the right level in Galbadia Garden. And then the actual fight between Edia and Cypher that caps off the end of Disc 2 is uh, one of the better boss battles in the entire game. It's, uh, it's really fun. It's really intense. I, I don't know. Like, just everything Cypher about this has, is great. I, I love how Cypher has, like, tat his coach just, just ruined mm. just, just <laughs> because he kicked his ass before. Uh, yeah, yeah. The whole sequence is... And when is she comes bad. crashing down through the hologram or whatever that is. Yeah. That's so yeah. cool. It's so cinematic for, for what it is. Yeah.
Speaking of cinematic, number four, The Lunar Cry. Lord, I love everything about Squall and Company going to the moon. It's equal parts That's haunting crazy. and ridiculous, and it's a marvelous tribute to Final Fantasy IV. It's one of my absolute favorite sequences in the entire game. Adele is very creepy and monstrous when they're out in space and uh, they're reviving her and everything. And then all the monsters being spit from the moon down to Earth. Uh, great moment. I am pro Final Fantasy on the moon all the time. And I actually hope that 14, the expansion for Endwalker has a Lunar Cry tribute oh, of some kind. You know what they're going to do uh, with sure Final Fantasy 14. Come on. They haven't done much in the way of eight. That's why I'm kind of hoping they, they finally get something in there. I like that it's an excuse to have more powerful ma- uh, monsters show up. It's like, yeah, Lunar Cry happened. Now there are more powerful monsters here. Yep. It makes sense. I like, yeah, yeah, I like when, um, I like when, when games do that too 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 little that happens i also they do a much better job of setting up the lunar cry in a visual standard way than uh they do the gfs with the whole memory thing because the moon is this thing that's always in the background it's always just kind of there it's hard not to miss like when you're in dalit and you're running across a bridge and that huge shot of the moon is just absolutely glorious it has the moon kind of in the back of your mind this entire game and then you actually go to it yeah that's a that's a really good setup the moon is just this giant thing always looming in every practically every scene outdoors and it really solidifies the crazy kind of sci-fi uh sci-fi fantasy feel of final fantasy 8 really differentiates it from final fantasy 7 in so many ways so yeah the lunar cry is yet another highlight and finally number five the ending yes i like it it's bizarre i like it let's talk about it stable time loop there have been theories for a long time and they were ultimately uh kind of uh, debunked but i don't mind them that renoa is actually ultimicia in the future <laughs> i heard something about squall being dead but i think that's well, like, squall also dies of old age and renoa <laughs> goes mad from grief and she has the griever that's why griever shows up as the third uh form of the actual boss and we know that Renoa is a sorceress and so I was going to say the, the squall being dead one though is is actually you know that's oh. that's actually somebody theorizing that he dies on disc one right yeah and everything after that is a crazy fever dream which also has been debunked <laughs> but I believe it, it. he it's, gets it's the aston- icicle thing it's astonishing right it's astonishing how well it all lines up like there's loads of creepy stuff mm-hmm. but it doesn't start happening until disc two yep um to me, that's my canon in, in a way. Um, <laughs> Fandom. Because I just think it's genius. Um, Scoresdead.com, I think. If that, if that, if <laughs> I think it's still around. If that still exists. Um, yep, I just checked. It does still exist. I think that everything from the lunatic Pandora to when the party go into time, like initiate time compression, I suppose, and are traveling through time and you're expecting Mr. Pete body to show up and say, quiet you (laughs) (laughs) while you're fighting the the, the horrible sorcerer snake people um, into Ultimisia's castle, which by the way, has yet another 
amazing theme um, with yes. m- a variety of boss battles that are actually really fun and it can, lets you get as much or as little of your abilities back in preparation for the final battle. The final battle with Ultimecia itself, as I already mentioned, is a banger that like goes on for four separate forms and is really intense. And it's also in its own way a, a weird test because it won't let you use the GFs anymore. Like if you've been relying on GFs to this point, Ultimecia will be like, no, you can't do that anymore. Sorry, you got to actually fight me. <laughs> I changed the rules. Deal with it. And then the finale, the actual end, is actually quite beautiful as Squall is running through time and space. One thing that we haven't really talked about is that Squall is a very traumatized guy. Uh, I felt very bad for him in the way that he has like serious abandonment issues, how he feels like he has to take care of himself from the very start. And it made me feel sympathetic to him, whereas I always felt like he was kind of a whiny brat initially. And now I'm like, oh, poor Squall. God, he has such a hard time. Poor Squall. Well, he was kind of abandoned from the start. That probably wasn't good. Not going to do great for your (laughs) self-esteem. No, and I think the ending kind of ties things together really nicely Mm. and uh, it cements that whole link between Squall and Laguna in a really sweet manner when you see like Laguna propose to rain and then you see him by her gravesite and it's just well uh dude can't catch a break but he's still very optimistic about everything there's actually so a really different. really yeah to, to, he, he to seven it's it's so different to seven in that regard um it, it ends definitively Squall that's true is in a more I don't know he he's in a worse place for out but a better place at the end <laughs> Of her light cloud yeah, goes in the opposite right. direction. <laughs> Final Fantasy VII was extremely open, open-ended until it wasn't. There's yes. actually, um, in Dissidia 012, there's kind of a really sad scene where uh, Uguna talks to, to Squall and they don't know they're related. And it's uh, really cute the way they interact with each other. But uh, Uguna chides Cloud for being so distant and said, look... You don't you don't know when you're going to be separated from someone you love more than life itself. So you have to really take every moment as it comes, and as he put it, expand your horizontals because he always makes up those crazy catchphrases that aren't exactly right. So he's just you don't really know if he's 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 not really speaking from experience at the time. But you when you know what happens to him in eight and what happens like how he loses rain and loses squall and and all of that like it and Julia of course it uh, it, it kind of like hits you a little bit. We talk about how Final Fantasy VIII takes a ride down to Crazy Town and ends up being swarming with magic robots and all of that. But <laughs> I think the ending does bring it all the way home. And that ultimately yeah. is what cements it as like a really good game. No, I was just saying, no, yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. Like the, the ending, I, I, you know, I even love the fact that the credits roll over a, you know, very nineties oh, camcorder recording <laughs> that so much. of a party with Zell it's, choking on the hot dog. Zell nearly and chokes it, and death. It, yeah, it's, and it's perfect. It's because it, it, that is again comes back to what we said. It's at its best when it's about a bunch of teenagers, and that's when you're a teenager. There's always the person who's got their camera out, who you know is trying for some reason is obsessed with documents and events, and in this instance, it's selfie mostly.
right, it's time to talk about Final Fantasy VIII's reception. So when Final Fantasy VIII came out, obviously it was hugely anticipated. And here are some of what the critics were saying at the time. GameSpot's Andrew Vessel gave it a 9.5 out of 10. Final Fantasy VIII combines a fantastic story, amazing visuals, and excellent sound with solid RPG gameplay, an eminently tweakable junction system, and scads of secrets and extras. Cast all fears aside, the latest Final Fantasy is the greatest game ever to bear the name. At the time, you people don't really remember this, but Final Fantasy VII was actually quite controversial among hardcore Final Fantasy fans, especially in North America, because it was it really drew yeah. a line between new school Final Fantasy fans and old school Final Fantasy fans. So I think that's where Vestal is coming from. Edge said it was a far mm-hmm. more accomplished game than Final Fantasy VII, and but on uh, but on the other hand, IGN said the Guardian forces are incredibly cinematic but also tedious in OPM said that repetitively stalking spells is boring and repetitive. And this kind of mirrored a lot of the complaints that were going around at the time. Mm-hmm. Fans were also very yeah. split on it. Many hated the slow pace on skippable cutscenes, and just how different it was from Final Fantasy VII. It was seen as a real black sheep for a long time, much to my chagrin. <laughs> <laughs> could you not skip the Guardian Forces nope. uh, cutscenes? I thought you could. Nine uh, shortened it, but eight was like, no, right. we made these. You're going to watch them every time. You're going to watch them. At least it wasn't Night to the Round, I guess. I was kind of driven to not use the GFs anymore just because I didn't want to watch them every time. Yeah, totally. I didn't yeah. use them. In, no, I really didn't use them much. Like, Edia, the, like a point of pride was that that summon animation went on for like two minutes. It went longer than the Knights of the Round. Uh, they, I don't know what, was, what it was with Square and doing that sort of thing, but with Sephiroth's battle, that stupid supernova spell, every time he cast it, I would go up and make a sandwich because it was just <laughs> ridiculous. I want to see that spell. In the, oh please look it up the it's, it's the most no i mean i want to see it in the remake i want to see the i want to see the oh. new version of that of it does it just blasts through your tv and kills you instantly. that long i think they should totally <laughs> do it but i don't think they will final fantasy they don't have the guts final fantasy 8 really solidified me as an rpg hipster because i was always when like i like final fantasy 8 you don't like final fantasy 8 but i'm smart enough to like this game and understand it <laughs> It's the Rick and Morty of the uh, yep. of the 2000s. But now everybody likes it, so I'm not cool anymore. So screw Final Fantasy VIII. No, just kidding. I, it's it's sentimental favorite in my heart. Speaking of Final Fantasy VIII's legacy, I would say Final Fantasy VIII has definitely risen in estimation over time. Uh, would you all agree? Like everybody kind of likes Final Fantasy VIII now. Um, I don't, but I I understand what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, it is definitely looked upon more fondly than it was maybe even like. 10 years ago, people seem to... I think the remake really helped pe- boost people's appreciation for how wacky it is. I think, you know, it, it went through that classic Final Fantasy trajectory, actually, where there was definitely a period of time where it wasn't very well regarded, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. probably around the time that 10 came out. Um, but it, it's definitely come back now, and it's 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 got the love that it deserves, I think. Yeah. It, got, it came around to that segment... The kind of media cycle where everybody bags on it and then everybody eventually goes, but you know what was actually kind of good? Final Fantasy VIII. Like writing the contrarian yeah, headline. writing that, that hot take when you have a slow news day. Yep. <laughs> hot take. Like every publication has the hot take. Final Fantasy VIII is actually good. Uh, article. I know because I wrote it. <laughs> I think I saw it when I looked at <laughs> I wrote the US Gamer version of that. I spent like 2,000 words writing about that. Or two or 3,000 words because I really enjoyed it. 
Um, so yeah, like it, it, it's appeared on a lot of lists over the years. Uh, it was ranked second on Game Informer's list of the top 10 video game openings, which we haven't even really talked that much about it, but I mean, Liberty Fatale, incredible, uh, video game opening. Um, it was named one of the 20 essential JRPGs by Gama Sutra and, and in general fans have coalesced around its weird ideas and memorable world. It's generally remembered fondly as being emblematic of Square's Silver Age. It was the, when Square was still good, in other words, it's kind of compare and contrast. It's like, well, Final Fantasy VIII had its flaws, but at least it wasn't Final Fantasy XV, am I right? I prefer fifteen. What? Oh my God, Nadia, what the <laughs> hell? I think there is, there is an interesting discussion to be had, perhaps not here, about the parallels between eight and fifteen. I think there are many. Mm. Um, but I do think 8 is better than 15, yeah. I think Tim Rogers summed it up well when he said, I'll admit, as a 20-year-old, I rushed through it. It was hard for me to like the protagonist, Squall. The very first character we meet aside from the tough guy wannabe teenage protagonist is a slightly older teacher who sees right through his cold exterior mocks his tough guy dialogue, affectations, not five text boxes into the game. Mm. It felt embarrassing. It felt to me then like reading my old writing feels now. I didn't want to think about my dirtbag teen days at age 20 the way I don't want to think about my dirtbag 20s at age 40. Replaying the game in 2019 so far has been a delight. I'm able to fully appreciate the oddball game design choices that me and my hardcore fellow Final Fantasy fanatic friend frowned at in 1999. <laughs> the battles have a bravely default level of game designerly simplistic urgency that was sitting there all along for 20 years waiting for me to revisit it and appropriately freak out. All right, this is the part of the episode in which we talk about the case for it and against Final Fantasy VIII being in the Pantheon. We'll go through the reasons on either side. So we'll start with the case for it being in the Pantheon. And my first point is it is a really memorably bold Final Fantasy. When people talk about Final Fantasy VIII, the first thing they usually mention is its ambition. It tears apart the RPG genre. It is big and huge and is just extremely over the top is square kind of at its is craziest at its peak and i think that this is exemplified the most by the junction system which just tried to i mean you could say in a negative sense reinvent the wheel in a positive sense try just so many interesting new ideas for the way that you would handle it and in for the most part was uh how should I say the junction system? At least it wasn't boring. <laughs> so you can say the same for Final Fantasy VIII. It was just uh, so crazy, you know, that it can't help but stick in your memory. Yeah, I am of two minds about this, as we all know. I feel like the game should absolutely be praised for its ambition and its drive to do something completely different with RPGs and probably spurred a lot of people into returning the game because what the hell am I looking at? What is going on? And that is my problem. I feel like there is a very, very thin line between that ambition and I don't know if, what to call the other side, what the hell is going on. And for me, that was the junction slash draw system. I am, hey, I am open-minded when it comes to RPGs. Even back then, I was open-minded about RPGs. 
but I feel like there's just nothing enjoyable about drawing magic from an enemy, especially when you can sit there and draw it infinitely. There's no strategy to it. Like, I, I think I mentioned that in the last episode. Cat said, well, you stop at 100 draws. And I was like, oh, well, that's great. Thank you. But <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is I sit there with battling some mook and i'm thinking to myself should i be fighting should i be drawing should i be casting its own magic back at it i don't know what i'm doing here and i feel so odd about the whole thing i just i just want to to beat this enemy over the head of the stick and technically i should be able to do that except maybe i put in the wrong junctions and i can't do that so it's just such a frustratingly loose system to me that tries something different and i appreciate it for that I feel like they were getting to something and, and maybe it was perfected down the line like in in other mechanics that, that you see scattered throughout Final Fantasy. I just can't get a grip on it. And I tried. I, I, I hand up to God, I tried, Kat. I, I tried with the remake. It's, I think part of it is it is tremendously poorly explained. That is part of it. Yeah, the... You go to the, the, the menus that Quistus tells you about and there's all these initials and she's not explaining the initials or anything and what they mean she's just like okay put your cursor here where am i putting my cursor woman i don't know what you're talking to me about well i just say this this is this is the thing it's it's it is i love how open it is but i won't deny that it took me a couple of playthroughs and a lot of reading online to truly Mm. understand what stuff meant but complexity Um, isn't bad is the thing no no not at all it's just it's poorly explained so i can't blame a lot of people bouncing off it Mm -hmm. the thing that i'll say about uh the junction system is that when it comes to the draw system i think about specifically a moment when i was in galbadia garden in disc two and there was a particular enemy who was somewhat high level and had the spell pain and the enemy itself was actually quite dangerous and could inflict a lot of status effects on me it was kind of could hit particularly hard so i had to think pretty hard about how to make my party safe but at the same time there was a risk reward going on with uh, actually being able to draw the pain and so it was really satisfying when I got to the point where I was like okay now I can draw it and I, I think that drawing was fairly boring back in, in the original PlayStation release in fact I remember when I was playing it back in the day I would actually flip over to a different channel and watch, I don't know, like watch Seinfeld TV. or something while I just kind of hit the button, continuing to draw <laughs> off different enemies. But now you can put on the times three speed and you can draw really, really fast from enemies. I'll say that drawing is definitely the weakest part of the actual junction system. I'm not going to deny that. But I kind of like how all of the parts ultimately come together, how there are elemental attack and defensive ju- junctions how you can buff up your stats really fast or not so much at all, how you can use the GF abilities. I think the GF abilities are kind of the secret sauce in making this system particularly interesting because you have to think really hard about like which abilities do I want to actually attack to the attach to the characters. And honestly, that was one of the hardest things for a lot of people was the actual junction system was, in the end, pretty straightforward. It's just that a lot of people glossed over the fact that the GFs had these really powerful abilities that could have a huge impact on your actual stats, far more so maybe even than just which spells you were putting on which stats, right? So um, in, in a way, the junction system is actually pretty straightforward, 
but it provides a lot of power and a lot of flexibility. And that is something that I really enjoy having in a particular customization customization system. I like making interesting choices in my RPG systems, and I don't think you really get to do that in a lot of Final Fantasy games. So that's why Final Fantasy VIII stands out to me. Maybe that's why, as I said, it just does not stick with me because I, I do... It's not like I want my hand held. Like, I love Final Fantasy XIV, and that's a lot of systems going on at once, but I don't know. Just something about it just did not did not click with me, did not make me feel right. And what does the pain spell do anyway? Uh, it's kind of like the bad breath where you can just inflict multiple um, multiple status effects at once, and it's quite a powerful spell to a junction to strength or something like that. See, I don't know when to I don't know when to cast a spell or jump in it. <laughs> well, this is the thing that's really interesting about the system, and it shows how they were not playing it safe at all. In the sense that mm. in Final Fantasy VII, if you have a spell, you save it until there's a boss or a powerful enemy, or until you're in a tight spot and you unleash it. Whereas in Eight, the best and most powerful thing to do is actually to hoard them and and use them for junctions and not really use them, um, which is yeah, sort of wild. But I do, I do, I do. Here's the thing: if you just play it as a straight Final Fantasy game and you don't get deep into it, I do think the systems aren't quite there. Mm-hmm. I do think they're not quite fully baked, and I actually think that's probably got something to do with movements that probably happened part way through development with people like Ito. Um, I don't think necessarily there was continuity from the start to the end of this project however if you dig into it it is just tremendous and it's one of the best in the series but you have to give such such an investment of time and Mm, and your brain definitely there's and there's nothing and so wrong totally with that understand. there is nothing wrong with the no, game nothing that wrong demands with investment. It. it just makes me want to stick my just makes me want to stick my head <laughs> in a meat grinder that is me that is not you you are a systems person I we all know it. this i but that's not but even just because it's not to your taste doesn't mean that it's bad is what i'm saying oh no no i'm not saying it's bad Uh, i think alex has something when he says it's half-baked it absolutely Mm. is because there so much is not explained properly like the whole thing about how the more spells you have hoarded and you attach to your your junction your weapon or whatever your elemental like i didn't even know that that's what makes things more powerful you know what i mean it's just not explained there's a little number that goes up with the yellow stat it tells you that it's better but all these it's like into it it's like one of the first things you learn in the whole game and there are like these really extensive tutorials that are like mandatory that you have to watch they're not extensive she says two words and then sets you on it's your way t- they walk you through the menus literally they walk you through the menus and she uses like three words per window and is really frustrating and stupid i know <laughs> I, w- I will also say i think there's a lot of spells in this game to the game's detriment almost it's like there's there's mm. almost there's almost too many um and, and mm. that comes from the the junction system right where they want to have a lot of spells but like you, you just have stuff like stuff like you have double and triple um and stuff like having apocalypse and meltdown and pain as we mentioned but they're cool spells um, i mean this is the thing about this game is that it's not attack oriented spell oriented it's support spell oriented this is a game where status yes. effects actually have a much higher impact than in a lot of other final fantasy games which i really appreciate like using spells like blind can be extremely useful in a lot of cases and then also like i found that in my most recent playthrough i was setting up my party 
where Squall was kind of my main damage dealer. He was doing his limit break. He could do the most damage. I was putting all of my best spells toward him. But then I had Renoa and Quistus helping out mostly as support, casting, you know, Protect and Shell and Haste. And I had Triple going onto Quistus so that she could cast Ultimas. And I was using Blue Magic and I was using Angelo as a particular limit break to help out my party. And she was kind of playing the interceptor role where she could Inter- uh, Angelo could po- periodically pop up and revive Angelo. And there was just so much going on at any given moment. And I felt really satisfied with how my party came together at the end of Final Fantasy VIII. And the, the, the thing that I don't want to happen, and this is a thing in Final Fantasy VII that made me so bored with the battle system in it, is that it feels like you just, you know, hitting the, the menu buttons, you're just running and hacking and slashing, and that's it. In Final Fantasy VIII, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot going on at any given time. And so that's why I just... I appreciate Final Fantasy VIII trusting me to really dig into these systems. There's a dog you shoot out of a cannon. <laughs> and it's great. <laughs> yeah, and that makes it, yeah, that is, that is, that is pretty funny. Around. I like Angelo. And I think that it's really exemplified in the fight that you have in Omega Weapon. Yes, you can go and just, you can just go refine cards and get the, the Holy Wars and make your party invincible and then go and wreck it. But if you really understand the systems and understand how to use Angelo's like limit break and that kind of thing, you can have a really enjoyable battle. Like there's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of nuance to it. And so that's why I think the junction system has really captured my attention over the years. All right. Let's talk about the second point in its case for being in the Pantheon, in my opinion, it has so many amazing side quests. I mean, like there's so much to find in this world. This is peak Square Enix or Square Soft. Easter egg bullshit. Uh, this is where we talk. <laughs> like there are GF side quests where you can get like various. You can go get Odin, and then when you get Odin, he can become Gilgamesh because of Cipher, which is crazy. There's the DC Research Lab, which is a an optional dungeon where you can fight uh, Ultima Weapon. Uh, I already mentioned Omega Weapon. The whole Shumi Village. The whole Shumi Village for reasons. The the yeah. Chocobo uh, side quest. Weird bits where you're chasing a UFO. And then, of course, Triple Triad, which I think when people talk about Final Fantasy VIII, they're like, Triple Triad. It's amazing. Full stop. And like It's it's almost like the biggest part of Final Fantasy VIII's legacy, in my opinion, aside from Squall being mopey. Yeah, I think so. I do love Triple Triad. I play it in 14 all the time. It's definitely one of the the best ever mini games of all time. I do think, um, <laughs> I do think the actual quest there's a touch too much randomness to the way they're all spread and stuff like that. You can totally get snookered and end up screwed on that quest if you don't know what you're doing. Suggestion: um, that Don't challenge sort of... Edia. It's not worth it. <laughs> you don't want that random rule spreading. Oh my god. Oh my god, that's terrible. Yeah. But like it, it, it is excellent, um, and I think that those symptoms that I just mentioned are those things are just symptoms of game design from 1999, rather than being a problem with Final Fantasy VIII. You know, mm-hmm. I love the card collectors quest or the the card club quest so much because uh, it's fun to work your way up the ranks and find the different characters, and you can say, well, it's just strictly a guide quest. I don't know about that, like. 
if you just go around challenging people, you can kind of stumble upon it and then it becomes kind of a, an Easter egg hunt. And you're like, okay, but well, who's the next person up? And you're trying to kind of work it out. And there's a, a great bit where um, I think that if you talk to Zoo and uh, Quistus on the bridge of the garden, um, Quistus will hint that she is a member of the car club when she says that she knew that zoo was part of the club and other people Ah. are like, Oh, I didn't know that she was actually part of the club. It's just like little fun winks and nods there that I really appreciate it. I think that the actual queen of cards quest is kind of a pain and I never really bothered with it, but overall I think, well, like I say, (laughs) too random. I think triple triad on the whole though is kind of the, Er example of a really well done mini game with really good uh, rewards that also in its own way help build up the characters and uh, and it's just fun to play simple easy to understand but very fun to get into i'm very bad at it still i i love to play it, but i'm really bad at it you'd think it's such a simple game but you can get screwed pretty easily number three laguna let's Laguna is the best. Full stop. Right, Nadia? Yeah, that's pretty much all you have to say about Laguna. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I find him. You don't like Laguna? I find him. But he's so pretty with I, the hair. He's fine. He's, he's <laughs> fine, but I just find him quite, I find him quite trite. Uh-huh. I don't know. Well, I, like his, uh, I like his journey as like I, I a like, journalist, like, an actor, I, and soldier. He's so fun. I do like his first couple of flashbacks, like the, the one in... In, is it Delling or Dealing? In, in Delling City. In, in, yeah, the one mm-hmm. in, in Delling City, you know, with the hotel room, with Julian stuff, that's great. The one in the Esther Research site is great. And I also love how there's switches you can press and stuff in that that actually have a material effect on when Squall goes to that dungeon later on. Great design. Um, but after that, I just... I just, yeah. But that's my favorite part of when he's just like trying to cozy up to, uh, to Rain and he's just failing and they just. He's such a dork. Finally, he's, he's a, he's so a huge fun. dork. And his, he, he, his son is a, is a huge dork as well. I mean, maybe he shouldn't have left his pregnant wife and let her die, but uh, he, I guess he thought it was for the best to help out the people of, what was it, Astar? So uh, he became president and. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing like a lot of people. That's why I like him. <laughs> I just really like the the flashbacks. I really like the the back and forth. Like it kind of seeds this intriguing mystery and I think that those the flashbacks are also really speak to while I like Final Fantasy VIII as a text-based adventure and not having voice acting because I love seeing Squall's thought bubbles as you're going through like his kind of removed observation of whatever Laguna's doing, Squall consistently being like, what the heck is this guy doing? It really kind (laughs) of highlights Final Fantasy VIII's very weird and memorable sense of humor, uh, which a lot of that comes out of the translation, but some of it also comes out of the original writing as well. I think that uh, Final Fantasy VIII more than almost any Final Fantasy game has a lot of like kind of laugh out loud moments uh, that are just born of genuine hilarity. And a lot of it is to Squall being the only, as we already said, the only sane man observing an insane world. I feel, and I've said this many times before, uh, so apologies for the repeat, but 
I just like that they made Laguna the the, the stone cold opposite of mm. Squall, father and son. And that's something you just don't see in RPGs because it's always, oh, someone's going after their father's legacy. Someone's inheriting their father's sword. Squall thinks Laguna is a total moron, and he's right. And I would have... Oh, that's that's like one of the best lines <laughs> in the game. I dreamt I was a moron. <laughs> I dreamt I was a moron. Exactly. And I feel like I would have loved to to find, like see the scene where they find out that they're they're related because it is insinuated that uh, Laguna... And has the, knows everything, quote unquote, and he, he says he's gonna have to have a long talk with Squall later. And uh, Laguna's friends, uh, Quistus, not Quistus, um, Kiros and Ward, just kind of jabbing at Squall, saying, "You're lucky. You look like your mother. You don't look like your father." All right. Final reason, in my opinion, that it should go in the Pantheon, though, like I think there are a lot of reasons to go into the Pantheon. I'm just trying to boil it all down as much as possible. I think this game is gorgeous. It is, it is one of the most beautiful games on the PlayStation. I couldn't believe how well it held up. A lot of that is because of the remaster, admittedly. But I just, they really take the kind of matte painting aspect of the backgrounds to its logical limit. And there are so many wonderful details. Like when you're, when you walk up to the podium where Edia is giving her speech at the end of disc one, and you look down, you see the crowd actually like moving around and interacting with everything the way that it manages to integrate the cg into the the actual backdrops yes it doesn't work as well in the remaster because it's very jarring but i think that's more a fault of the remaster at the time it looked amazing and it still yeah still looks cool today it does it just speaks to the game's ambition, as we said before. Like, there is absolutely no denial that so much hard work went into making this game look cinematic. And for in a lot of places, it really succeeds. Yeah, the CG backgrounds in particular, I can think of so many moments where it, it just wows you. And definitely, when if you're playing the remastered version, as discussed at the start, they don't have the raw CGs. So they can't do lovely, crisp versions. So what you've got is... Um, up and AI smoothed or whatever versions of um, like I think they're three twenty by two forty. Yeah, <laughs> those backgrounds. Good old some times. of them, some of them are as big as six forty by four eighty, but a lot of them are, are that uh, are even smaller. And you know, when you were played it on an original tube TV, it, that obviously hid a lot of those imperfections and um, like some stuff that looks quite uncanny today, like the the train sequence when you're on top of the train, which is a sort of annoying mini game, but when you played it originally as it was then on the correct sort of TV, it just looked insane. And I, I love the world design so much. I love Timber. I love Fisherman's Horizon. I, I, lo- I love Ultimacia's Castle. I love a lot of the character designs, like even simple things like Edia, the the cutscene where Edia's helmet turns into her hairpiece is really gorgeous and just has this very distinct aesthetic um i think that ragnarok is really cool lunatic pandora i I think that final late later day final fantasy could be so disjointed final fantasy 8 has such a distinct feeling of place this futuristic version of europe which can on the one hand be really grounded but on the other hand go completely star trek crazy with places like esther or when you're going on the moon 
ah, wow, this game, it's such a looker. And I found myself on my most recent playthrough just constantly blown away by how much I enjoyed the, just the artistic direction of this game. Now for the case against it being in the Pantheon, and this is kind of already arguing about in the previous section, which is it truly is an acquired taste. I mean, there's so much about this game that I really like, but also so much that is dense, inaccessible, flat out weird. The pacing can be up and down. It's so slow without the three times option. I mean, it's absolutely no wonder that so many people hated it when it came out and why. And I think Nadia, like your complaints about it, just kind of exemplify, like you're not alone. A lot of people are like, I just don't get this game. It's just not for me. No, you can consider my comments just the the comments from the plebe gallery because that's <laughs> that's pretty much it. We're the dummies who are just like, what is these are numbers? Ew, get them away. I don't think you're numbers. It's just that, I mean, it is kind of hard to get your head around in some ways, right? When you're playing Final Fantasy, especially the first time, and even even when exactly. I was playing it on this most recent playthrough, even knowing kind of what I had to do, I found myself leaning a little too hard on the GFs in a lot of ways, because I was trying to get back, get get comfortable again with the junction system and being like, okay, like when, when do I get to the point where this thing starts to break open and do good things? And the turned out the answer was around the end of disc one as it tends to be. But so many people just never really get to that point. They just kind of flail around and then they're like, I don't like this game. I quit. Yeah, it gives me the game when I play it, it gives me a sense of, am I doing this right? And that sense is always there and it never dissipates. And that's what that's what bothers me most. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, we've definitely talked through all these elements that sort of make it hard to approach. It, It is. Never mind if you have played other Final Fantasy games, imagine how unfriendly this game is if you've never played an RPG before. Mm-hmm. That's the thing, or if you've never really played one like this, like, you know, from my perspective, before playing this game, most of my RPG experience uh, was with much more simple games, you know, more in the realm of Pokemon, right? Um, even though the timing of the release for Europe was quite similar anyway between those two. Um, and so... I, I, I'm still astonished that I fell in love with it so much, which speaks to the world and the characters and the presentation and stuff like that. I think that that's the funny thing is like that's the stuff that made me fall in love with Final Fantasy VIII. The thing that made me stay in love with Final Fantasy VIII, however, it was once I learned the systems, realizing how glorious <laughs> yes. <broken> it was. <laughs> yes. That's what I should have said in the first I understand, uh, I understand. the first segment was like it is gloriously broken, right? it's just so much fun to break this thing in half like when i was playing final fantasy 8 uh like way back in college or whatever i got to the final castle and i was just basically leveling up my characters manually leveling them up up and down just to being like okay now they're weak now they're strong now they're weak now they're strong (laughs) i really enjoyed it that's so cruel it's like a scientist, like someone has like electrodes attached to their brain and Cass is like. <laughs> Point number two, that's kind of ca- the case against it being in the Pantheon, the cast. Okay, I like the cast of Final Fantasy VIII. And I also 
don't um, like the cast of Final Fantasy VIII. Yeah. I don't like Zell. I don't. Zell's the, Zell's the one I he's like. He's a dork, actually. but I hate his design, and he is just kind of this little chihuahua that's always chewing at Squall's ankle. And it's like, I would never have They're him in my party chihuahuas. in a million years. Every single one of them is a chihuahua. It's, I don't know about it's, that. It's, I've never seen a cast Selfie like that. Quist just mean, isn't. So, oh, Selfie's definitely a chihuahua. She's a she's a Pomeranian, actually. But uh, I I like Laguna a lot. I like his friends. I like Rain. I mm-hmm. like that section of the characters but very there are much. characters I like in this game, Squall. for sure, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I feel like uh, I feel like Squall's cast is the one I'm less attached to. Like, does anybody like Irving? Does he do anything? No. He's ever? skeevy. Well, I think this comes on to this comes on to what what I was going to say, which is, I think a lot of them are just compared to most Final Fantasy characters, a lot of them are just a bit one dimensional, right? And but I think that is almost a bit intentional in the sense that it's the same thing of Umatsu not composing character themes, is that really these guys exist in service of Squall and Minoa, basically. Um. And so they they've got things going on, but if you if you sit kiss this next to Tifa or you know um, or Zhao next to I don't know next to I'd say Barrett Oren or someone or Barrett Barrett yeah I think there's there's definitely a a case where it's it's a more simple. It's a it's a more simple cast, mm-hmm. and it's a small cast for a Final Fantasy game as well. Really, um, it's definitely uh, you know a bit more. It's six protagonists, and you think about the games around it. There's way more. Some of them are optional, yes, but still. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think the characters suffer a bit from that, but the story doesn't suffer because the story isn't about those characters. That's true. So where yeah. it does suffer is that Ultimecia is a weak villain. I agree. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it's I wish he wasn't like, there. I wish Edia were the villain the entire way through. Yeah. She never gets mm-hmm. going because it's sort I mean, of she like, got going like um, there's at the end of disc two, when she shows up for the second fight, and she has like this real menace to her, and you're like, "All right, let's do this thing." And uh, Cipher is there by her side, and everything. Like she is at least kind of compelling, and you want to learn more about her. And at this point, you already kind of know that she is has the personal connection to Squall and company. We'll get to that in a second. But then she just turns back, and it's like, "And now this other character who you've never seen before and won't see until the very end. She is the new villain." Okay. It's well, so Dragon it's, Quest. It's, it's it's the problem of having a villain whose whole thing is host bodies, right? Mm. And therefore, you never get you know it's it's Adia, and then it's Renara, sort of, and then it's uh, Adele. Adel. <laughs> I like Adele. She's kind of a cool <laughs> monster lady. Um, and yeah, but this is what I mean. You don't really get a feel apart from Adia. You don't really get it because. And it has that big scene, you know, in uh, in dealing where she stands on the stands and, and gives her speech or whatever. So you get a feel for who she is. You don't get any near anywhere near as a feel for any of the other villains that you end up fighting after her. 
which yeah yeah it's a, yeah that's that's definitely the week and then it's kind of exemplified by the fact that what the heck is Ultimicia's plot? She wants to create a singularity in which past, present, and future is all come together. What? It doesn't even make any dang sense. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what her motives are. To be honest, I don't think any of us do. We're all just kind of blanking out here. I mean, time travel. Time travel is never particularly never clean. No. in stories. Um, you know, I guess you're saying by compressing time, things aren't going to be. <laughs> well she no she dominates time yeah, and space it's, it's, is the thing it's not that she's dominating the world she is dominating the universe effectively sure yeah yeah like like we said this game is better when it's about teenagers yes who happen to be soldiers yes, yes that's depressing and speaking of teenagers who happen to be soldiers uh the orphanage revelation it doesn't work i rewatched it <laughs> i wanted to like it it was very sweet. It was kind of cute. But the game needed to do so much more to set this whole thing up. It just it just comes out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, like, okay, they all knew each other as kids. And it's because of GS. And yes, you could say, oh, it has a hint at the very beginning. But I think that it needed to be an overarching thing, like, throughout the, throughout the whole game. It's like, here are the, here are the costs of using GFs. You need to understand these costs. What's especially bizarre is the game has nothing mm-hmm. to say about it. It's like Garden is full of people who are training to use GFs, and there's never a commentary on the fact that all these people are having their memories eradicated. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, sort of like, you know, um, it comes back to, like you said, there's hints, and some of it is, it comes back to um, the thing I said about Cypher and the uh and, and and the whole laguna thing and the movie thing it's like there's a really cool little easter egg where it makes clear who selfies gf was that she in if you go and read her diary in trabia after it's destroyed she talks about how as a very small child she found and equipped a gf when she was you know before she was at garden or whatever and then in the gameplay systems, she talks about where she found it, and she talks about having an affinity with this GF, and where she found it is where you get Cactuar, and then when you actually equip that GF, it has more affinity with Selfie than everyone else Aww. out of the gate. This, it's it's another example of like, there's so much thought put into this, and yet where it actually matters. It does not work. Right. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> this is getting into script doctoring territory, but I mean, I think that they could have made it work if they had just said, okay, these people have known each other their entire lives. And if you showed flashbacks throughout the game to their time at the orphanage, right? And then maybe you can make the reveal that Gasp, the lady who was running the orphanage, um, turned out to be the villain all along and everybody like realizes it, Right. Uh, you could, I don't know. And it might've kind of been interesting if Edia and Sid had been planning the garden and everything together. And then Edia like is consumed by her powers and goes crazy and then becomes like an increasingly dark force across the universe. And now you got to kill this, this lady who was, you were taking care of. Like there's a ways that you can make it work, but in making the GF kind of the driver of this and then trying to make it a big reveal. It's like, surprise, they all knew each other all along. It, it doesn't work at all. And 
I just have to mm. add that disc two in general really drags. The desert prison is kind of the freaking worst. Well, it's just the same screen mm-hmm. over and over again. <laughs> Get me out of here. I don't want to be here anymore. But I guess it is supposed to be a yeah. miserable prison, right? So. <laughs> no, there was a desert prison in seven too, but I kind of like that prison. The way it was set up was really. Well, they turn you loose at the end of disc one. And you're like having a good time. You're starting to get to know things. You're getting to understand the systems. You could break the game in a big way at the end of disc one. And disc one ends on such a high note, which we'll get to in a minute. But then disc two, like for a full half of disc two, it's just very linear, very straightforward. You don't get to basically choose your party members or where you want to go. And you're just like, let me go. I want to go. I don't know. Do side quests or something. Why am I destroying a missile base? I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Basically, yeah, it, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish it. Uh, I wish it was more consistent. In that yeah. Moment. Well, I mean, nobody said Final Fantasy VIII was perfect, but it is. Hey, it is no. interesting, and it is very interesting. I'll give it that. Okay, folks, it's time to make the call. Does Final Fantasy VIII deserve to be in the Pantheon? We each get a vote. And of course, we'll also ask our readers what they think, but we're the ones who get to decide. Nadia, you're the hater. I know what you're going to say, but I'll let you start. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. It's just... Uh, I, I don't find it fun to play. And I, obviously, if you don't have a game that's fun and uh, to, to really grok and play and understand, then you don't really have a game at all, even if it's just an, a story-driven RPG. I understand that some people love breaking this game open. I, I, I understand that it has some really innovative stuff in it. I really appreciate it's part of its story. I think Laguna's a great character. I think I love the, the little links that like Alex was just talking about and the links between Squall and Laguna. It's just a really kind of interesting kind of storytelling that Square doesn't fall back on anymore. They're, they're a lot more uh, boisterous now, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. But just mechanics-wise, it just did not click with me. And that's just my my single opinion. And I know you guys don't agree with me, I mean, but I'm not still alone, open. Nadia. <laughs> I know I'm not alone, but amongst you two, I'm alone. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is what I'm going to say. Final Fantasy VIII absolutely does deserve to be in the RPG pantheon. It is emblematic of a very particular time in Square's history. And there's, when I was replaying it, it just really solidified it in my mind just how much I loved this, loved this game back in the day and love it even now. Its battle system, as quirky and weird as it is, it's just so wonderfully fun to crack open in different ways. The world is really interesting to explore in a way that Square's worlds just aren't that interesting to explore anymore. I love all of the things that you can find. I love the 
the hidden GFs that you can uh, capture, almost like Pokemon. I love the 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 optional dungeons, like the deep sea laboratory, the deep sea research center. Sorry, I love the the crazy story. Like there are so many insane memorable moments like i mean i in a lot of ways i felt like i was just barely even scratching the surface when we were going through like five amazing moments in the game and those those highs were really high uh and so final fantasy 8 just stands out so clearly in my memory it's not just that it's weird and interesting and very bold and ambitious and an artifact of its time i think it holds up it's still really fun to play and I'll I'll be I'll level with all of you. Like I play a lot of video games. I like a lot of them wash over me. And um, even games that I loved growing up don't always get their hooks into me. But Final Fantasy VIII Remastered really did get its hooks into me into a way that really surprised me. And what's what's even better is that it's actually quite short. Like you can knock it out in you know twenty twenty five hours. Do a lot of the side content on top of that, and the side content is consistently fun so i think that final fantasy 8 it holds up it has a kind of an indelible part of square and rpg history i really admire its ambition and everything and i don't know like if you put a gun to my head and say cat you, you can play replay one final fantasy i mean i would replay final fantasy 8 before i replayed final fantasy 7 if i'm being honest like it's just more interesting to me it's denser it's a true RPG. Okay, Alex, you're the tiebreaker. Does it go into the Pantheon? Well, you know, I think it has to be said that it's an excellent game. However, it also has to be said that it is deeply flawed. Uh, but for me, it's a yes for, for many of the reasons that you just articulated. For the fact that, you know, in many ways, some of its shortcomings for instance, how broken it is, are often <laughs> part of the charm. Um, it's a really unique piece within the Final Fantasy series. Um, and yet at the same time, I think it's been very defining to most of what has come afterwards, for better and for worse. Like I said, there's a lot of parallels between this game and 15. Um, and a lot of those parallels come in the sense of being a game that is flawed but still has a lot to offer um but i absolutely think it belongs i absolutely think it's a must play for anyone who wants to play it like if if we're looking at the the 15 main final fantasy titles and we're saying oh we've got to pick a top a top five or six that people should play to understand what final fantasy is this might not be top five but i think it would definitely <laughs> be top six. that's that's really <laughs> the crux of it isn't it alex so, interesting that- you would say, yeah, you should play Final Fantasy VIII. It is a game worth playing to understand the series and to understand RPGs. And by the way, it's not just an artifact of its time. It's still pretty dang fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. Still still good. It's still good. But, you know, it, definitely I think with modern mm. sensibilities, some of the stuff that was that was just rough around the edges back in the day now is particularly egregious. But I don't think there's anything that... that I'll admit, I'm biased because... Far. So much of the quirks that other people would find really annoying. And I know that there were people in Discord like, I can't deal. No, absolutely cannot deal with this game. I'm out. Mm-hmm. Um, my to people. me, there's like, I'm really nostalgic about this. Oh my God, this is so of its time. I love it. Uh, so is that. And I acknowledge its flaws. I'm going to be honest. I really wrestled with whether or not I would consider Final Fantasy VIII to be 
part of the pantheon. Um, Alex, you're you're a sports fan. Are you familiar with the the pyramid Hall of Fame yeah, kind yeah, of idea? Yeah. yeah, the idea of like the 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 very the 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 transformational players like a uh, Babe Ruth or Chrono Trigger are in the absolute top top tip, and then you know your your Burt Blylevins are in the the bottom area the the entrance um i would say final fantasy 8 would probably be the entrance of the rpg pantheon being like hey look it's over here um it's such an edge case in many ways but uh i mean at the end of the day i have to say that yeah it it deserves to be in there it is a pantheon level rpg okay that's it that is our pantheon of the blood god for final fantasy 8 Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for supporting Acts of the Blood God over on our Patreon. We so appreciate it. We appreciate all of our patrons at the $10 level and above. And as a $10 and above patron, you have access to many, many benefits. We do a a Pantheon game club every single month. We've been playing Final Fantasy VIII all month. We'll be playing a new game next month and chatting with it about it as a community i felt like i learned so much about final fantasy 8 and had such a great time revisiting this game with our community so if you're not in the discord already what the heck are you doing go on over it's a lot of fun it's a wonderful community we also recently wrapped up our mini series watch of the witcher season one over on netflix you have our wrap up and everything you should go listen to that and uh you know in a couple months we're going to be doing our summer of the rings watch that's gonna be a lot of fun we have another mini series coming up so lots of bonus content coming along as before you can follow acts of the blog on and all of the social channels that's twitter and instagram and i'm also on twitter at the underscore catbot nadia is at nadia oxford and alex is at ap zone runner make sure that you go check out rpg site it's a very good website about rpgs and alex uh is a great follow on twitter as well because he knows so gosh darn much about final fantasy as we saw <laughs> he does it's he puts, puts me to shame <laughs> as we saw in this episode alex thanks for dropping by by the way no thank you it's been it's been a pleasure it's been really fun i i eight is i haven't had a chance to, to think about eight this way for a long time <laughs> well, I look forward to dragging you back on when we inevitably do another Final Fantasy because you know it's going to happen. Whenever we want to go back to the well and start dragging in more patrons, be like, let's do another Final Fantasy for the Pantheon. Here we go. And get Alex in here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, that's it for the Pantheon of the Blood God. Thanks for listening and happy adventuring.
Shit.